Okay, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to NVIDIA's Investor Day. I'm Simona Jankowski with Investor Relations, and it's my pleasure to welcome all of you here today, as well as all of those who are joining us on the webcast. Before we kick it off, I would like to read our safe harbor. We will make forward-looking statements in today's program regarding our expectations and other future events which may differ materially from NVIDIA's actual results. I'd like to refer you to our SEC filings for description of our businesses and associated risks and other factors which could cause the results to differ materially from these statements. All our statements are made as of today, March 19, 2019, based on information currently available to us. Except as required by law, we assume no obligation to update any of these statements. Also, if we use any non-GAAP financial measures, you'll find the reconciliations to GAAP on our IR website. Okay, so with that, let me just go over very quickly the agenda for today. Uh, we're going to be starting off with a few minutes with Jensen Wang, um, our founder and CEO, who I think you all know, uh, talking about our strategy. Uh, we will then move over to our gaming business, uh, which will be covered by Jeff Fisher. Following that, we're going to talk about data center with, uh, with Jay Perry, uh, automotive with Rob Chonger, and finishing up with financials with Collexus, our CFO. Uh, we are going to have about an hour of Q&A uh, after all of that with Jensen and Colette. And then after that, we're going to have lunch, uh, which is going to be in the gold ballroom if you walk out the doors and down the hall to your left. In terms of just a couple of closing items, if you need anything throughout the course of today, uh, just reach out to myself or Sean Simmons on the Investor Relations team, uh, and you can find us in the back of the room or just email us. Um, and again, I'd uh, like to request that all of you silence your phones. Um, and with that, it is my pleasure to now welcome to the stage Jensen Huang. Thank you. This is going to be the fifth hour of my keynote. If you missed it yesterday, if you happen to have missed it, uh, you can watch it on YouTube. Put it on 3x speed because it'll take about two hours if you did that. Simona? Oh, yeah. There we go. First of all, welcome. It's great to see all of you. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to, do, I'm going to do a couple things. I'm going to explain, and this, for most of you, you, you know this very well. There are some new faces in the room, so I thought I would do this. I would explain what accelerated computing is. Accelerated computing is accelerating, but it's not an accelerator. And I want to define the difference for you. Okay? And so as soon as... as we, Hey guys, fish. Hey guys, I'm trying to give a talk. Are you, close that door. It's an analyst meeting. You know, when you guys come to NVIDIA's formal events, it always seems like home cooking, doesn't it? Okay, so um, <clears throat> accelerated computing. Accelerated computing is particularly important today because CPU scaling is no longer happening at the exponential rates that it used to. At a time when application workload, demand on computing is growing incredibly fast. The question, the question is, how do we extend Moore's law? How do we extend Moore's law? 
Well, we came about this idea called accelerated computing a decade and a half ago. 26 years ago, when we first started the company, we realized that accelerators could help us achieve performances otherwise impossible with a normal computer. Accelerators. And we built, we identified one particular accelerator that has what we called at the time, if you saw one of my presentations 26 years ago, it said, bless you, sustainable opportunity. Sustainable opportunity. Meaning, meaning that this particular application called virtual reality, trying to achieve virtual reality 3D graphics, was going to take nearly forever. And the reason for that is in order to create this environment, you have to simulate physics. Light physics, particle physics, material physics. You have to simulate physics and you have to do it so fast that for all practical purposes, it's going to take forever. And the reason for that is because at the time, simulators, supercomputers were doing it, simulating some fluid dynamic simulation or particle simulation. It was taking a week on a supercomputer. What are the odds that we're going to be able to do it at 120 frames per second and to be able to simulate all of the interactions with all of the agents performing artificial intelligence capabilities all interacting together? The odds of that happening within a lifetime is approximately zero. We were not wrong. We identified one problem statement that we said had sustainable opportunity. Ten years into it, ten years into it, we discovered that in fact, in order to continue to expand it, we have to expand the aperture, if you will, of the things we accelerated. No longer was it sufficient to just accelerate graphics. We had to first simulate the physics and then accelerate the graphics. Because you have to simulate the water. You have to simulate the, the, the leaves blowing in the wind. You have to simulate things, you know, particle physics as, as buildings crumbled. And so it was impossible to have animated all of that. We decided that you had to simulate that. So we expanded the aperture of our accelerator and we invented this idea called CUDA. To, so that we could expand not just accelerating graphics, but the domain, the domain of virtual reality. The domain of virtual reality. That time when we transitioned from a graphics accelerator to a domain accelerator, we became an accelerated computing company. An accelerator accelerates a function. An accelerated computing platform accelerates a domain of applications. Does that make sense? An accelerator is a video accelerator, H.264 accelerator. An audio codec is an accelerator. All of the stuff that runs on an audio codec, with the exception of the analog, can run in software. All of the things, all of the functions in a video decoder or encoder can run in software. And in fact, the first prototypes of a decoder is in software. And the first prototypes of an encoder is in software. So all of these functions, computer functions, can run in software, and it's possible to design an accelerator for that one function. You would use a video decoder to decode video, but you would not use a video decoder to compute molecular dynamics. You would use a video encoder 
to encode video, H.264, H.265, or back in the good old days, MPEG-1 and MPEG-2. But you would not use a video encoder to do, for example, a recurrent neural net for deep learning. And if you designed a recurrent neural net deep learning accelerator, you wouldn't be able to use that, for example, for random forest machine learning algorithm. If you designed a functionality just for an accelerator for one functionality, it would certainly be very good, but it doesn't have the necessary aperture to accelerate a large domain. The challenge, of course, is if you created a product that has an aperture of infinite domains, what you've done is you've created a CPU. The reason why accelerated computing is so wise and the reason why, although many other parallel computing approaches have come before us, the reason why it has lasted the test of time is because it allowed the CPU to do what the CPU is good at, and it accelerated the domain of applications that we are good at. And that discipline of trying to figure out how to expand the aperture while reducing the aperture at the same time, that strategic choice is ultimately the strategies you see at GTC. There's several things you could do to test whether something is an accelerator or an accelerated computing platform. Of course, the first thing is it has to be a programmable architecture. On the one hand, one day you have to do molecular dynamics, another day you do quantum chemistry, another day you simulate a large climate science program called WORF, another day you're reconstructing images out of electron microscopy called cryo-EM, which won the Nobel Prize in physics two years ago. It's hard to be able to do that if it is only designed for one thing. It has to be programmable. The second thing about all computing architecture is that it has to be an architecture, which means this. An application that you wrote for that computer runs on that computer and on that computer. And you buy a new computer tomorrow, and the application runs on it. A computing architecture has some capability of compatibility over time. And it has to have a large installed base. Otherwise, applications can't find computers to run it on. Accelerators don't have that problem. The other characteristic of an of a accelerated computing platform is it has to have a rich software stack. It turns out the most important thing about our company is our stack. That's why we talk about it all the time. If you look at this, this is our stack. Our stack starts with the system architecture. I'm not showing the chip. I'm taking the chip for granted. The system architectures, the RTX is for graphics, DGX is for scale-up high-performance computing, otherwise known as deep learning or supercomputing, hyperscale HGX, and then AGX for autonomous computers, little systems that are intended to live at the edge, largely disconnected from the cloud, largely disconnected from the cloud. We are currently, because we're artificial, we're, we're somewhat intelligent, we're, we can perform our jobs disconnected from the cloud. I am currently disconnected from the cloud. Okay? I'm autonomous. And so that AGX is designed to be an autonomous machine. On top of that is our most important layer called CUDA. I call it CUDA here 
But that, light, that layer is really complicated with a whole bunch of stuff. It's not worthwhile to go into. But it's basically, if you will, our AWS. It's basically our Windows. CUDA makes it possible for an application that runs on CUDA to run on all of these devices. Yesterday, I announced a $99 computer. A $99 full computer. It runs the same software stack as a million-dollar supercomputer, as a quarter-of-million-dollar DGX deep learning system, or a PC. There's only one computer architecture in the world aside from this that does that, and it's the x86. And so an accelerated computing architecture has a rich software stack. The other thing about accelerated computing that's interesting is this. Because of what I said earlier, there's only one computer architecture that can boil the ocean. That's called the CPU. It's general purpose. That's its nature. That's its weakness, too. Its strength is that it can run everything. Its weakness is that it doesn't run anything super well. Now, during a time when the performance is increasing by a factor of two every year and a half, it was plenty fast enough. And the reason why it was plenty fast enough is because software developers take two or three or four years to complete each round of major innovation. Meanwhile, the computer has already quadrupled in performance by the time that the next build comes along. It's fantastic to just ride that wave, to do nothing and just let the wave take you. That was the whole dynamic of Moore's Law. It was fantastic while it lasted. But now, if that slows down, if that slows down, then all of a sudden you can't solve new problems. If you can't solve new problems, the software industry will suffocate because they can't, obviously, introduce new ideas. And that's why the world needs a path forward. We need a way to go forward. Now, you're not going to find a way to go forward by, boy, by coming up with another general purpose computer. You have to find a way to go into it through domain acceleration. Not a function accelerator, not an, not an accelerator, but an accelerated computing architecture so that we can take the industry forward. Well, this, computing, this accelerated computing architecture must have vertical domains that it focus on, otherwise known as the counter of horizontal vertical. And so we select verticals strategically, strategically and methodically, so that we can, one, make a contribution by the time that it's necessary. It's sufficiently large to be able to sustain the enormous investment that we put into it. But it's not so large, it's not so large, it's essentially a horizontal problem. For example, a web browser is so large, there's no such thing as a web browser accelerator. The only way to accelerate a web browser is to make every web browser faster. However, video games is a little bit of a unicorn. We identified the killer app 26 years ago using exactly the same methodology I just described. 26 years ago, we used the same methodology and we said, if we wanted to be one of the world's most important computer technology companies someday, what is the killer app that we can make a contribution to that will take us all the way? And the killer app we found that we thought of, that we identified and focused on, at the time was a $0 billion market. Electronic Arts was 14 people large. 
Zero billion dollar market. That zero billion dollar market is called video games. It's a unicorn because it has two characteristics simultaneously. It never happens. It never happens. You have a spreadsheet used by millions and millions of people, but the computation requirement is low. You have a weather simulator. The computation requirement is enormous, but the volume requirement is very low. So in both cases, it's unable to justify an accelerated computing platform. There was this unicorn that stood, stood out there. We imagined that if someday there was a, such a thing as a video game industry, it would both be large because everybody would be gamers. Who wouldn't want to play? And then two, the computation requirement of it would be gigantic. The unicorn. 26 years ago, we found the unicorn. Well, methods, that same method is being applied here. And you can see one segment after another, we're essentially finding verticals that are sufficiently large in domain that could sustain more and more and more and more and more investment as we grow into them. High-performance computing, scientific computing, a very important segment. Artificial intelligence, we're going to talk plenty about it today. Drive autonomous vehicles, a very, very difficult computation problem. Not just a computation problem for in the car, but computation problem before you get to the car. That gigantic computation problem I described a little bit yesterday. Drive, the whole platform of Drive, the initiative of Drive, is about creating the autonomous vehicle future, not about making a self-driving car. It's a little bit different. One of them is very large in scope. It requires you to be a software-defined company. It requires you to have an ecosystem. It requires you to have developers and tools. Isaac. I've described Isaac in the same way. The ultimate AI problem is both a wonderful opportunity when you solve it in the device at the edge, but getting there is a supercomputing problem. And I've shown a couple of examples yesterday where you're essentially creating a virtual reality world where the robot has to learn how to be a robot. That is a supercomputing problem. Clara, named after, named after Clara Barton, who started the, the American Red Cross, is our platform for medical imaging, computational medical imaging, turning the instruments of medicine into a software-defined problem. Today, it's a bunch of instruments and widgets and things like that. Today, tomorrow, it's going to be largely software-defined. Algorithms are going to fly, and they're going to be able to do things that otherwise impossible today. And then lastly, Metropolis. The Metropolis name kind of gives it away. It's really about thinking about cities and places as one gigantic robot in the future. Our city in the future will have three characteristics. Cities of the future, factories of the future, buildings of the future will have three characteristics. The first characteristic is tons of sensors. The second characteristic, a bunch of computation at the edge. Basically the reflexes of that robotic city. Doesn't have to go to a cognitive brain in the cloud and then third connected to a cognitive brain in the cloud. Those three characteristics so that you can make decisions and plan. Perception, reasoning, and planning. 
the three computations of, a, of an intelligent being, otherwise known as the computation loop of intelligence or robotics, is going to be used for Metropolis. At this, uh, I think there are talks at GTC between us and Microsoft where, where uh, Jetson Nano, um, our uh, edge computing stack, is connected to the Azure IoT stack and some really, really exciting applications could be made possible. So this is the accelerated computing stack, very different than an accelerator. We focus on domains, not functions. There's a couple of things that, that characterizes a company who's a platform company. If you're a platform company, you talk about design wins less. If you're a chip company, a components company, you talk about design wins a lot. When you're a platform company, you talk about your ecosystem a lot. And the reason for that is because you've created the market or you're creating the market and you need a lot of partners to work with you to realize the full potential of that market. You have ecosystem partners that work with you on your platform. And that platform is rich with software. And that software is domain-focused, not function-focused. It doesn't do CNN. It does accelerated data science. Okay? And so if you look at the, con the, the comparatives when you, think, when you hear us talk, that's the reason why we talk this way, because we're a computing platform company. Um, I announced a couple of things yesterday. First, Fish is going to talk more about this, but the big takeaway here is RTX is off to a great start. It is clear now that ray tracing is here. This week is Game Developers Conference, and all they're talking about is ray tracing. It is clear that ray tracing is here. Remember this. Ray tracing is software. And the reason why you can tell ray tracing is software is Turner Witted, NVIDIA researcher who invented ray tracing, iterative ray tracing, recursive ray tracing, did the first implementation on a VAX in software. We know it's software because all the movies that are made is in software. It's called rendering software, and it runs on CPU farms, otherwise known as rendering farms. What RTX does is not do ray tracing. What RTX does is make ray tracing fast. So we love the fact that people do ray tracing. We just want to make it super fast. And there's no question ray tracing is here, and RTX is going to make it super fast. Number two, um, take, so the second thing that I showed you yesterday was the fact that graphics is going to be a new data center workload. This brings us so much joy, as you could imagine. Graphics is going to be a new data center workload. You heard Matt Garman say it on stage yesterday as well, as he was talking about the need, the, the demand on AWS, and one of the major applications is graphics. He's mentioned graphics several times. And so graphics in the cloud, we're super excited about that. It's going to be a data, new data center workload. And then yesterday we gave an update, and Fish will talk more about this, about our partnership with um, regional telcos, global telcos, and it's part of our GFN strategy. We call it the GFN Alliance. He'll explain this, but very simply, they buy these servers from us. 
they buy these super-optimized graphics servers from us called RTX. After they buy the servers, we host a service on top of it. Because the GFN service belongs to us, we can host that service, and we share the revenues with them. We share the revenues with them. So they buy the servers from us. They share the revenues on the subscription fees on top. Does that make sense? That's called the GeForce Now Alliance. You could imagine the economics. It could be quite good. I talked about data center. Graphics in the data center. There's several new workloads of gra of in the data center. Of course, graphics is, we already talked about high-performance computing in the past. We already talked about deep learning in the past. We already talked about inference in the past. We're going to talk more about that today. But some of the new workloads that I talked about this week, graphics is one, and the second one, the second one, is a gigantic one. This is the unicorn that we've been looking for in the data center. Let me explain to you why. Remember, I explained earlier that there are two types of applications in computing, and that's why there's largely two architectures. And if you look it up, it says there are capacity machines and capability machines. That's the way the supercomputer industry talks. The way the hyperscale data center people talk is they say there are scale-up machines, and then there's scale-out machines. Scale-out is hyperscale. You take a cost-efficient computer, and you scale it out linearly so that you could support a whole lot of jobs that are small at the same time. Scale out. Scale up says you build the largest computer you possibly can. Whether it's the largest amount of computational capability, the amount of storage, the amount of active memory, the amount of networking, you build yourself the largest machine you can so that you can solve the largest problem as fast as possible for one person. Weather simulation, climate science. These things take forever to simulate. That's called a capability machine. A capability machine, a capacity machine. A scale-up machine, a scale-out machine. A supercomputer, a hyperscale data center. Are you guys following me? All three phrases are identical. Okay? All three are identical. Here's the unicorn. It turns out a supercomputer, the market size for it is not very large. The computational challenge is great, and we're doing fantastic in supercomputers. Here I showed you, I showed you a bunch of numbers. I call, you know, people at NVIDIA call this CEO math, and, and I just got to concede, it is not accurate, but it is absolutely right. Okay, it's not accurate, it's right. It's, it's, this is intuitive math, and, and if you go double-check it, you'll find that it's probably wrong in some area, but at, on the large scale, it is perfectly right. All right? And so if you look at the numbers, the, each one of the numbers, each one of the, each one of the ticks, if you will, is three orders of magnitude. Are you guys following me? This is three orders of magnitude here. This is extreme log-log. Okay? Now, Extreme Log Log says, in supercomputing, I need a billion petaflops, not in seconds, in units. I need a billion petaflops in order to perform some of those simulations. In the case of 
concurrent users, CCUs, a hyperscale data center has to support hundreds of millions of people at the same time. In the case of supercomputers, only tens, if not at the very, very most, a hundred. In the case of hyperscale, the amount of computation that it takes to perform these neural networks is small in, to in total. It's just there's a great deal of them. And the scale goes everywhere from hundreds of gigaflops to maybe hundreds of teraflops in units, not in time. Okay? And so what's interesting is this. Data science, data science, it's that bubble in the middle. When we have more time, I'm happy to break it all down so that you guys get a feel for the numbers. But the important thing is this. On the upper right to the lower left, uh, low, upper left to the low, lower right, upper left to the lower right, upper left to the lower right, the upper left, the upper left is three orders of magnitude more computation from the top to the bottom, and the, the lower right is three orders of magnitude in volume. And the reason for that is this. Data science is the only high-performance computing problem we know where there's millions of people. Millions of people. And millions of people in different fields of science, healthcare, financial services, they call them quants, insurance companies, retail, logistics, travel, you name it. Every single industry will benefit from data science. That's why there's so many people the amount of computation you need because the amount of data that you're working on is so gigantic, it's simultaneously a large computing problem. That's why the quants have the largest computers. Now imagine there are going to be millions of quants. And the reason for that is because there are so many industries where there's domain expertise and finally the technology is capable of being used at a large scale. The frameworks, the algorithms are sufficiently robust now, and the schools are teaching it. You guys know that data science is being taught to every single field of science in a university now. From sociology to oceanography to forestry to agriculture, it is the fourth pillar of the scientific method. This new pillar of the scientific method came about literally made possible in the last 10 years, came about in the last five years, and about the same time that deep learning was happening, the same dynamics was happening to data science. It is going to be a very large market. And data science as a fourth pillar, theoretical, experimental, computational, and now data-driven science, okay? This is quite a large market. For the upper left, am I doing this right? Upper left. Um, on the upper left, our strategy is to create something simple for people to use. It's basically an appliance of a supercomputer, because most companies don't have the ability to build a supercomputer. It's too hard. Too much IT, too much system integration, too much software optimization. We containerized it, if you will, turned it into an appliance. On the right-hand side, it's a scale-out problem. We have to turn basically a data center for an enterprise or a hyperscale data center into a high-performance computer. And there, we have to break it all down in a different form factor, build different GPUs, write different software, work, for different, work with different partners, and our go-to-market is different. 
the go-to-market on the right side are the world's top enterprise makers, enterprise computer makers. They're all signed up. They're all so excited. On this left side, they're really deep, super quants, super data scientists. And there, the numbers are not in the millions. They're probably in the order of, call it 50,000, okay, 100,000. But they need the best machine. And we reach them through experts in uh, other, other specialized IT experts like storage companies because it turns out if you want to use one of those machines, you need a lot of storage anyhow. A lot of harmony there. And so, so I have something to do with our go-to-market, and Jay will talk more about that. So this, the second point is data science is a major new market. I mentioned ecosystem. This is our ecosystem in one slide. Now, when I say ecosystem, I don't mean design wins. When I say ecosystems, these are all partners of ours who are taking the NVIDIA architecture to market. They're not changing it. They're not hiding it underneath theirs. They're taking it to market. They might integrate it with theirs. Okay, so this is our platform and their platform coming together. Sometimes this is our platform going to market by itself. But these are ecosystem partners of ours, and we're super, super happy that literally everybody in the larger IT industry is part of our ecosystem today. We announced two new types of computers. We announced a data science workstation, and we announced a data science server. Both of them software fully integrated. You buy them, you should be able to deploy them. Really complicated set of software. However, it's already configured and optimized for you. One of the things that you could see, and then in the cloud, we announced a partnership with AWS, and uh, uh, Matt Garman was very, very, uh, very, uh, 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 I really appreciate him coming down and celebrating the moment with us. And uh, so we have workstations, servers, and cloud to take this data science platform to the world. And then lastly, one of the things that you might notice is if these workloads, work sets, are so large that it doesn't fit on one computer, the connectivity between the computer becomes the greatest challenge. And I showed yesterday the performance of a fast interconnect and the performance of a fast interconnect with the right type of CPU offload, the performance difference is 2x. What that says is that the architecture of the networking, not just the speed of the networking, matters a great deal. The architecture of the networking, not just the speed of the networking. And our vision is that someday, someday, the computing fabric, the computing fabric will not stop at the boundaries of the server. The computing fabric would extend out into the network. And the network and the compute will become one large computing fabric, especially for data centers, which as we know is the most important computer in the future. And then lastly, we announced autonomous machines. Autonomous machines is both a edge opportunity for us, but we wanted to show you that in fact, the reason why we're part of it is not just because of the edge, it's because getting to the edge is a big opportunity. That getting to the edge is a big opportunity. In order to create the ultimate AI, which is otherwise known as a robot, or self-driving car, or IoT device, AI-IoT, when people say those things, they're saying basically a robot. 
an autonomous machine. In order to achieve that capability and putting intelligence at the edge, the process of getting there involves deep learning systems, machine learning systems, data analytic systems to develop the software, to simulate the robotics before you deploy it, and then, of course, to deploy a very complicated set of algorithms and software. Our strategy with the autonomous vehicle is to enable the entire world of AVs to become autonomous, whether it's robot taxis or passenger-owned vehicles or trucks or cars or vans or, you know, forklifts, construction vehicles, farming equipment. They're all going to have autonomous vehicle capability. We want to enable all of that. And so we created an open, software-defined, accelerated platform, accelerated computing platform. We want to do the same for something that's even larger than that, robotics. There are a billion cars sold each year, but as we know, based on the things that I described earlier, there'll be trillions of things out in the world someday. They're all going to connect into essentially large networks that turn buildings, factories, cities, farms into essentially autonomous robots. The future factory would be a factory, would be a robot that's building other robots. And so that, when I say robot, I don't actually mean, you know, necessarily somebody who has limbs and walks around. I, robot, the concept of a robot, chatbot. An AI assistant is essentially a digital robot, okay? So when I say robot, I just want you to hear something different than what you might be imagining, an autonomous system, an AI system. And so we announced, uh, we announced a, a family of products, and we announced yesterday that we're expanding our partnership with Toyota tremendously. We were already working with them on some early developments of, of cars, and now from end to end, from software development, AI development, to simulation, to computing, to algorithms. We're going to partner deeply with the world's largest car company. They've selected us to be their primary technology partner, and we're very honored by that. And so that's basically it. There are three takeaways, then, that one, RTX has taken off. It's off to a great start. Ray tracing is here. There's a whole bunch of new workloads for the data center. Graphics is one. Data science is another, autonomous vehicles is another, and of course, IoT is another, robotics at a very large scale. And then the third is data science is the new driver for HPC, and every data center in the future will be a high-performance computing data center. I want to thank all of you for coming, and uh, with that, I'm going to hand it off to Jeff Fisher. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Fish. Thanks, Jensen. <laughs> I need a, is there a clicker? It's, I left it there okay. for you. Fish and I have only been working together for 25 years. We were children. Welcome, everybody, to Investors Day 2019. I want to give you an update on gaming. And uh, there's a lot going on. We had an exciting year last year. I'm sure you guys all know, and we look forward to an uh, even more exciting year this year. Last year was a record year for gaming. We launched RTX, biggest leap in graphics in 15 years. 
Uh, Fifteen years ago, we launched programmable shaders in our Fermi architecture. Today, virtually, well, every game is based on programmable shaders. With RTX, we launched a brand new architecture heralding in real-time ray tracing, and I'll talk a bit more about some of the momentum behind this next-generation architecture. Max-Q laptops driving thin and light laptops. This year, we've got the, the thinnest, the lightest, the most powerful laptops driving the laptop market. I'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, just past last year, most recently, we brought our turning architecture down into the mainstream to the 219 price point. We now have a top-to-bottom stack of Turing GPUs. Millions more gamers coming onto the architecture. And finally, uh, not to be missed, last year we mentioned crypto came to town, and this past year it left town. Um, we see the crypto hangover on track to sell through our channel inventory by the end of Q1. That is uh, uh, moving nicely. So this year was a record year, 13% growth year over year, and let's uh, dig in a bit more. First of all, the fundamentals of gaming remain very strong. Our basic core business is, continues to be strong. As we've mentioned before, and I continue to say, everybody born today is a gamer. Every child is born a gamer. The demographics are also working in the favor of gaming. Gamers continue to game longer in life. You start out a gamer, you game longer in life, the total population of gamers continues to grow. And what's driving that? Well, esports momentum is still huge. I wanted to, if you don't mind for a moment, I uh, saw in my inbox this morning, we get, a, we get a weekly update from my team on what's going on in the world of esports. I know you guys track that news very closely, but just in case you missed a few things, I'm going to read you a couple things that came in my inbox this morning. Just for note, Call of Duty franchise sports, franchise esports to sell at 225 million per team. Call of Duty franchise spots to sell for 25 million per team. Apex Legend is primed to be the next big esport. Okay, no surprise there. Battle Royale blurs the line between entertainment and esports. It's not just for competitive gaming, but it's also for watching. Snoop Dogg's, you probably miss this, Snoop Dogg eSports series kicks off tonight. Walmart becomes the first major grocer chain to put eSports arenas in the stores. $5 for open play and leagues at night. Esport, ESPN announces creation of college eSports championship, of course. Disneyland Paris to host a Dota 2 major this year in May. And as you know, the Dota 2 major, the, the final tournament, is being hosted in Shanghai this year. China is one of the biggest markets for esports. In the Mercedes-Benz Stadium, that will hold 185,000 spectators. And the Dota 2 tournament is the biggest tournament in the world from a prize pool standpoint. Last year, it had a $25 million prize pool. So eSports is obviously getting a ton of attention. The momentum continues to grow, and it's bringing in new gamers in the U.S., but most importantly in the APAC regions, in emerging markets, and in China. The viewership for eSports is about doubling over the last four years, continues to bring in an audience. More people are watching eSports online than watching basketball. And the number of gamers continues to grow, attracted by the competitiveness, the competitive nature, the social nature 
of esports and competitive gaming. About 30% over the last four years, more gamers coming into PC gaming. And of course, on the AAA gaming side, the cinematic side, game production value continues to increase. We talk about this year, but it continues to grow. Game developers are adding more realism into their games. It takes about a five times more powerful GPU to play today's games at 1080p, 60 frames per second, than games that were, were released in 2014. Games keep getting more realistic. You need a higher-end GPU to play them. And these are the fundamentals that continue to drive gaming, and we see a strong future for gaming. So let's take a little bit, take a deeper look into our business. Specifically within the gaming business, our GeForce GPU business grew 18% year over year last year. That is both de in both desktop and notebook. The contribution is both from units and ASPs. Our five-year CAGR for units and ASPs continues at about 14%. Total revenue growth over the past five years, about 29%. But if you look at laptop, laptop is outpacing desktop in terms of growth, for reasons we'll talk about later. Both ASP and units contributed to our laptop growth that drove about a 59% year-over-year increase. Looking more specifically at RTX, Jensen mentioned that RTX is off to a great start. Well, I would say... RTX is on to a great start. You see what I did there? RTX is on? Yeah, okay. Anyway, RTX is on to a great start. We've now released RTX uh, GPUs down to 349. At CES, we launched the RTX 2060 at 349. I mean, time flies when you're having fun, but that was just about eight weeks ago. So I look back at our estimated sell-through of RTX from 299 up. That's a 2060 up. Compared to our estimated sell-through of Pascal from 299 up, that's about a 1070 up, starting from time zero of each of these devices. Turing sell-through, RTX sell-through, is outpacing Pascal by about 46% in revenue, normalizing the time zero first eight weeks of sales. So... RTX Turing is definitely off to a great start. Estimated sell-through. If you look at our installed base, the installed base is ready to upgrade. About half of our installed base is Pascal. The other half is older architectures. And Turing is just getting, just getting uh, its toehold in at 2%. And if I look at the performance of the installed base, 90% of our installed base is below one of our most recent GPUs we announced, the, the uh, 1660 Ti, is below the performance of the 1660 Ti. I'll tell you in a little bit of why I picked 1660, 1660 Ti and why that's relevant. Another fact, digging into, digging into our sales, the Turing buyers that we're able to track that are upgrading from our install base are buying up. 90% of the GeForce RTX buyers are buying up from a lower price point. They had a lower price point GPU in their system. They bought a Turing and, and upgraded. So 90% are buying up. So let's take a look at what's driving that. There are two types of games, and not necessarily two types of gamers, 
but two types of games. Esports, simply put, I'll say esports, which is competitive gaming, and cinematic or AAA gaming. Within our installed base, there's about a 50% overlap. About 50% of our gamers will play both. Some will play one, some will play the other. But they all value the performance of the GPU. Esports gamers value frame rate. Faster FPS means faster response time. And faster response time means more wins. We see in our install base gamers that are playing esports titles want to play at 120 FIPS or higher. Interestingly enough, looking at our ecosystem, and specifically Fortnite, we can see that gamers that play at higher FPS have a higher, what we call a KD ratio. I'll call it a win-loss ratio. Gamers that play at 60 frames per second relative to gamers that are playing Fortnite at 240 frames per second win roughly two and a half more time, times fat, uh, more often. In a, their KD ratio increases about two and a half times more. They win about two and a half times more often at fat higher FPS. It's natural. Faster to point and shoot is the one who's going to win. So there's definitely a relationship between more FPS and more wins. And the pros know this as well. There's a popular site called ProSettings.net, if you've not been to it. ProSettings.net has about 900 uh, gaming pros and streaming pros online where they, uh, where they enter what all of their gaming hardware is, including their system config and, and GPU. 98% of those on ProSettings.net, the pros on ProSettings.net, are powered by GeForce. And interestingly enough, over two-thirds of those pros are playing on systems that have the performance of an RTX 2070 or higher. And over about a third are the performance of an RTX 2080 or 2080 Ti. So the pros know that the better the rig, the faster the system, the more often you're gonna win and the better the gameplay. Looking at our GPU stack, I mentioned the 1660 tie, 90% of our install base is below 1660 tie. 1660 tie is what's required to play Apex Legends, as I mentioned, fastest growing uh, competitive gaming title on the planet right now, at 120 FIPS, 1080p, High settings. Gamers, serious gamers, as well as pros, value FPS. 1660 ties, what we see as a starting point, but they don't stop there. As with the pros, they will upgrade their rig to get the best possible performance. Also mentioned AAA gamers. AAA gamers have different priorities, or gamers who play AAA games have different priorities. Their priority shifts to image quality. These games are designed for cinematics, the best possible image quality. And they'll play it, they want it at a smooth frame rate, say 45 to 90 frames per second. In order to get 45 to 90 frames per second on modern game, say Metro, Battlefield 5, you need to start with an RTX 2060. 
This is at 1440p. If I were to benchmark this at 4K, you would need to start at about an RTX 2080. So there is definitely upward motivation for gamers to upgrade to play the latest esports titles at very high FPS and to play AAA games at the highest possible image quality. But now is where the fun really begins, and that's with RTX and ray tracing. It was just past this past November that Microsoft launched DXR. Like I said, time flies when you're having fun, but it was just about four months ago when the gates opened for ray tracing in games. Microsoft launched DXR. This week, the next shoes, big shoes drop. Jensen had mentioned it as well, but Epic is announcing that Unreal Engine 4, the number one game for the number one engine for AAA games, is integrating DXR and RTX support in their game engine, and it will be shipping to the game to their thousands of game developers in the next couple weeks. I think tomorrow they're actually going to give a specific date and show some demos. If you didn't notice from the keynote yesterday, real-time ray tracing is definitely the next big thing. The demos that you saw were unbelievable. If you aren't convinced then, take a look at the control demo from Remedy that was posted last night on YouTube. Control is an upcoming game that looks amazing ray traced. Unity also announced that they're going to be in Unity is the number one uh, powers about 50% of the world's games. Unity announced at our keynote yesterday that they're integrating RTX support and DXR into their game engine. And they're going to be handing out builds to developers starting on April 4th. In addition, most of the first party engines, including Frostbite, Remedy, CryEngine, uh, Engine from Crystal Dynamics, 4A Games, are all supporting DXR and real-time ray tracing. I'm heading up to the Game Developer Conference after this show. My team is book solid with devs talking about real-time ray tracing coming into games. Real-time ray tracing is the most exciting technology we've rolled out. We've seen the best response, poss best response that I, I have experienced at NVIDIA from developers to implement real-time ray tracing in their next generation games. We're tracking, let's say, about a dozen games that are coming later this year, early next year, to implement real-time ray tracing, and those are the ones that we just have visibility into. With the release of Unreal and Unity, I expect that to accelerate. As Jensen mentioned, ray tracing is a software algorithm. It will run on CPUs. It's accelerated by GPUs. But we designed RTX to further accelerate, to make real-time ray tracing possible in fully interactive games. If you look at Metro, we can run Metro on Pascal. And I don't know if you've seen some of the coverage, but we, are, we announced uh, that we're going to be uh, adding DXR support to our drivers for all of our GPUs so gamers can play with it. Um, 
But the fact that it'll run doesn't mean it's going to run interactive. In fact, with Turing RTX, with RT Core uh, and RT Core plus DLSX, RTX will accelerate over uh, ray tracing over Pascal about 3x. In order to get fully interactive ray tracing, you need an accelerator, you need a next generation architecture, and that's what GeForce RTX was designed for. <clears throat> Arrow should stop at the green bar. 3x. So we're super excited about the future of RTX. We're super excited about the momentum behind real-time ray tracing. Game Developer Conference this week is, I think, when it all really kicks off in earnest, and we're going to see a ton of momentum uh, coming out of the show. We talk about notebooks now. Students want mobility. Students want the game. Starting at CES, we launched RTX coming to notebooks, and we launched a next generation of Max-Q, thinner, lighter, more powerful notebooks than the world has ever seen. Max-Q has been driving the growth of the notebook business for the last several years. This year, <clears throat> for the last several years, we estimate the OEM end market revenue of notebooks to be about $12 billion. It's grown about 10x in five years. This is what the OEMs are seeing in terms of their total revenue and revenue growth from gaming notebooks. It's easy to think of a gaming laptop as the fastest growing game console. OEMs are so excited about gaming and notebooks in particular, they're rolling out more and more models. This year we expect a number of notebook, of Max-Q notebook models of thin and light gaming laptops to double to about 45 models. And within each model, there's going to be multiple GPU configurations. So you could easily double or triple that in terms of different notebook configurations that will be in the market this year. Max-Q thin and light gaming laptops are taking over and driving the growth of the laptop market. Jensen also mentioned GeForce Now at a keynote and the next billion gamers that we can address. Today we have 200 million GeForce gamers. If you look at the entire population of gamers playing on underpowered notebooks, playing or want to play on underpowered notebooks or Macs, you can reach another billion gamers. GeForce Now has been around for about two years now in earnest. We've been perfecting the experience, quality of service, a uh, number of games onboarding. Got about 500 games now available on GeForce Now, 15 data centers, 300,000 monthly active users, about a million people on the waiting list because we can't service them. The demand among gamers who are on underpowered PCs appears to be pretty huge. Within our current monthly active users, about 90% are playing on PCs that are underpowered, do not have GeForce GPUs in them. What is GeForce Now? GeForce Now is a GeForce gaming PC in the cloud. Give users access on low-end clients to a high-performance gaming PC in the cloud. Fully interactive gaming. And we're rolling out VR. 
It's a simple game launch. We are not a store. It's a PC in the cloud. It's a simple game launch. You launch a game off your desktop just like you would any other game, and voila, it's playing in the cloud. We offer an open ecosystem. Publishers, developers, direct to gamers. We don't intermediate. We are not a store. The stores, the publishers, the developers keep 100% of their revenue. We, we are a service. So scaling out, we've had a ton of interest. We've seen a ton of interest from telcos who are interested in interactive gaming and VR. It's a perfect use case for 5G, and it's a perfect value-added subscription to their broadband customers. So we created a program called GeForce Now Alliance. And what GeForce Now Alliance is, as Jensen had mentioned, we've developed a server that is optimized for cloud gaming. We're using that in our data centers, and we are packaging it up as an end product for uh, GeForce Now Alliance. We'll sell a complete server, and on top of that, we will run our GeForce Now service. License the telco. Share, share revenue as it scales out. This gives us the opportunity to hit markets that we don't currently address, and it gives telcos the opportunity to bring in more value-added customers into their, into their ecosystem. We announced two partners uh, yesterday at Keynote. SoftBank focused on Japan, bring in their 6 million broadband customers and ultimately 30 million mobile customers and LGU Plus in Korea. And as you know, Korea is a big uh, gaming market, as is Japan. Bring in their 4 million broadband customers, uh, 4 million cable customers, and 13 million mobile customers, ultimately, into the ecosystem. We expect to see the Alliance services starting to roll out uh, in the second half of this year. So that's gaming for me. I hope I touched on some of the things you wanted to hear about. Um, our growth levers for this year, RTX is off to a great start. 40%, 46% initial ramp revenue, sell-through revenue, Pascal to Turing. GeForce laptops, fastest growing game console. That's the way I think about it. Students, gamers, kids want mobility. They want high performance. They want thin and light. Max-Q is driving this growth. GeForce Now, we can reach another 1 billion customers. We're super excited about the Alliance partnerships. I think our service is awesome. If you haven't tried it, you can log on. I'm sure that Sean or Simona can get you a code to jump the million gamer wait list. You can check it out. It's really, uh, it really is amazing. The interactivity is, will blow you away on your Mac or, uh, or Enterprise Notebook. GeForce Alliance then will let us scale out. We announced LG and SoftBank and expect to have more announcements uh, coming over the course of the year. So that's my story for gaming. Look forward to speaking with you all later if you have any additional questions. Thanks so much. I think Jay is up next for Data Center. Hey, Jay, before you start, I've got to make a quick announcement. 
I got to quick, make a quick announcement. Where are you? We are, we are <laughs> in historic grounds. It turns out, it turns out, this cozy room is the location of the world's first GTC developers conference. This is how many developers we had. This is how it all started. This was the first one. Anyways, I'm so excited to tell you that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> all right, great. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. It's nice to see you all. Um, my name is Jay Puri. I am responsible for NVIDIA's worldwide field operations, and it's a real pleasure to be here. Today, I'm going to talk to you about our data center business. So, uh, we had another record year. We grew over 50%. The business is now $3 billion. And, you know, the computing approach that we pioneered is just really taking off. Our business is driven by applications. And you're at GTC, and you can just see the excitement that all the developers have about NVIDIA's platform. In fact, uh, uh, the number of developers grew more than 50% just last year. So the momentum is really terrific. Of course, we are number one in deep learning. We are the de facto platform for deep learning training. And uh, we are getting real traction in inference now also. In fact, our inference business last year uh, was a few hundred million dollars. So, uh, you know, things are actually going very well. Uh, there was a bit of a pause with some of the large hyperscalers uh, towards the end of last year as they digested some of their big purchases earlier in the year. Uh, but that is temporary. You know, the amount of traction we have with them and all the announcements you heard yesterday uh, with Matt Garman here with T4 and, uh, uh, you know, uh, NVIDIA's Rapids platform now being incorporated into all of their machine learning platforms and so forth. I mean, the amount of stuff we are doing with these customers is actually quite mind-boggling. And so uh, I'm sure the business is going to follow as it has to. Okay, so let me talk a little bit uh, about uh, the size of the market. The overall server market today is about $100 billion. And we feel that, you know, $37 billion of that is ripe for high-performance computing, as Jensen described it. So about a decade ago, a little more than a decade ago, we introduced CUDA to scientific computing, which was our first segment. And of course, at this point, we have a commanding position in that market, right? All of the supercomputing centers, every major university, all the research centers, they are now deploying NVIDIA's accelerated computing model. And then about five years ago, when deep learning came to the front, and the hyperscalers like Google and Microsoft and Facebook and all, you know, quickly realized uh, that uh, artificial intelligence, deep learning was going to transform their business, and they needed a 
a fast computing platform and CPUs were just not going to cut it, uh, you know, they all migrated towards GPUs. We quickly saw that opportunity and leaned into it big time. And so we took our CUDA architecture, widened its aperture a little more, as Jensen put it, and we had libraries such as CUDNN and so, so on, and, and very soon working with all of the uh, uh, framework developers, you know, we had the best platform for deep learning, and we are doing really well with the hyperscalers there. And a couple of years ago after that, I think even the traditional industrial companies in um, automotive, healthcare, retail, financial services, you know, the leaders began to realize, hey, AI is going to transform my business. And so uh, uh, they all wanted to start using deep learning, and we introduced DGX, which is a supercomputing appliance that allows you to do, do AI really quickly, you know, get off to a good start. And we're starting to make real progress in uh, the enterprise now. Okay? But this is just the start. As Jensen mentioned, you know, data science is a new workload that is going to have a major impact on all of these segments. And it's going to mean that the high-performance computing part of the server market is going to more than double over the next five years. And we believe that NVIDIA's addressable opportunity there, our TAM, is going to be you know, $50 billion, give or take. So we're really excited about that. Okay, let me talk a little bit more about the platform. You know, uh, Jensen did a great job of explaining to you that there's a real difference between an AI computing platform and just an accelerator. You know, I think all of the computer science world has now understood that Moore's Law is at an end, and domain-specific acceleration is the way forward. So, uh, obviously, this is a big opportunity, as I pointed out. Many companies want a part of it, and so there is all types of accelerators that are being announced. And perhaps some accelerators like FPGAs and so on that would like to be platforms, but frankly, they're pretty far from that if you use the Prada definition, uh, as Jensen pointed out. Now look at our platform, right? Uh, it is, we've been at it for over a decade, 12 to 15 years, and so we saw this opportunity a lot earlier than most companies. And so we've been investing in it for a long time. You know, at this point, our platform is software compatible from the Jetson Nano to the largest supercomputers in the world. We have been really disciplined about making sure that we maintain backward compatibility through all this time as we continue to innovate at a furious pace every year. And so, you know, the, the number of applications that are here is growing at a really rapid pace. And this span multiple domains, as Jensen explained earlier, right? So 
nobody has the maturity of this platform. Just think about the investment. We have made tens of billions of dollars worth of investment in this platform ourselves. And that's just the tip of the spear. It's really about our ecosystem. The 1.2 million developers that we have on the platform now. All of the scale-out partners. If you count the total investment in NVIDIA's platform at this time, it's got to be, I don't know, hundreds of billions of dollars. So it is not easy for someone to come in at this point and try to duplicate this, right? So we have all the uh, important applications in the domains that we are addressing now, whether it is scientific computing, AI going forward in data science, and the performance is incredible. You know, uh, uh, when you have a new uh, domain like AI, it is important to have some industry-specific benchmarks that everybody can uh, look at to compare uh, different options that they have. So Google led an effort uh, to come up with a set of industry benchmarks called uh, MLPerf uh, recently. And it's a very comprehensive set of benchmarks. Uh, you know, they did a very good job. Uh, they're tough. In fact, we have lots of companies that are part of the MLPerf consortium, but only about three or four companies could even submit results that met the requirements of the benchmark. And I'm so pleased that you know, NVIDIA was the leader in all six of the important benchmarks. And not only that, but our lead, you know, we, we beat the competition by a fairly healthy margin. So it shows that not only do we have a very widely adopted platform, but it is the most performant platform that is out there for artificial intelligence. Okay, our value proposition. Actually, if you understand accelerated computing, I think uh, uh, you understand uh, why the value proposition is so compelling. We are able to take, you know, we are able to accelerate applications many-fold. So if you can accelerate applications many-fold, obviously you don't need as many servers. And so if you don't need as many servers, you know, the acquisition cost is going to be less. And if you don't need as many servers, the energy cost is going to be less. I hope you know that in most data centers, the energy cost actually uh, is more over a five-year period than the acquisition cost. So as a result, you know, our value proposition is extremely compelling. And now, of course, uh, we have machine learning or data science. That's our latest workload. And uh, it, it's, it's a huge opportunity. And, and you can see, you know, our, uh, uh, our uh, advantage in TCO is 80%. All right, let's, let me talk a little bit about, uh, you know, our business model. What do we sell? Uh, okay. Uh, so we sell, at, uh, we, go, we have two types of products. Uh, we make our own systems, uh, the DGX line of products that goes from about $40,000 to uh, over $400,000. And then, you know, it's stacked up in racks, uh, in pods, uh, and, uh, and so forth. And we work with our uh, uh, storage partners uh, and our uh, networking partners to develop a complete solution for our customers. And we also take our technology to market 
through our OEM partners, uh, through our Tesla product line, for example, where our Tesla cars go from $1,000 to about $10,000, and also uh, our uh, uh, architecture is available through every single uh, crowd service providers. So let me talk uh, a minute about why do we do this, you know, why do we have uh, uh, this uh, product line and, uh, and what is our uh, uh, business model. We do our own systems for a couple of reasons. One reason is, of course, it's all about the full stack, as Jensen mentioned to you. So if you're going to innovate on the complete stack, we have to have a reference architecture. And that is our reference architecture, right? It's important for us to continue to innovate and move the, the technology forward. It's also very important for our uh, development partners, all the developers. They have to have a gold standard, if you will, for NVIDIA's uh, uh, architecture, NVIDIA's accelerated computing platform. A second reason, and just as important from my perspective, is it's a great tool for business development. You know, we have to go and create these markets, which means we have to go and engage with all of these lighthouse customers when we're first getting started. And we need a way for us to be able to engage with them. And having our own product line that we can go in with and work with them on creating the first solutions and so forth is, is very important. Uh, so that's another reason why we have our own set of products. But... I have a small sales force, and really we want our platform to be ubiquitous. Uh, so the real go-to-market strategy actually is uh, through our OEM partners and through our cloud service providers. And every single OEM in the world, every single system builder in the world is now using our platform to build their solutions, uh, and we are available in every cloud provider. Okay. Finally, we have NGC, the NVIDIA uh, GPU Cloud, our software hub, uh, and uh, that sort of unifies everything because it is available, our accelerated applications and know-how and so on is available there, and that can be deployed whether it's on our systems or it's on systems of our OEM partners or even in the cloud. So that is sort of what we sell and how we sell it. Okay, a minute on our go-to-market strategy, right? So, of course, the foundation is our platform. Uh, that's where we add all the value, uh, and, uh, you know, that's what we are really proud of. Uh, but because it is about domain-specific acceleration, it's not about general-purpose computing, what we do is we go and pick those domains. So we go into vertical industries, whether it's, transportation or healthcare or financial services or, uh, or retail or what have you. We go look at those industries, you know, uh, we go meet with the leaders in those industries, we try to understand what are their pain points, what are the applications if we could accelerate would have a major impact on their business, and then we work with them hand in hand and, and see what we can do about accelerating those. And our track record, of course, is very good. So that's kind of how we go to market. We go and look at specific domains in specific verticals, and then we go and accelerate those. 
Once that is done, uh, then we have uh, a, a tool such as we have a deep learning institute, uh, whereby we can use that capability to go and explain that uh, to all of the other uh, customers in that industry that, hey, we have a fantastic solution for you now. Um, and of course, uh, we uh, spend a lot of time enabling our partners uh, and uh, our ecosystem, other ecosystem players uh, to allow us to scale out then and really go and make these solutions available widely. So that's it. Pretty simple, but actually it's a lot of hard work, but it's fun. A lot of fun because you know it's, it's fun when you can offer that kind of a transformative um, uh, a solution to the industry the, the types of d discussions that you have with people uh, it, you know it, it's really you can just see the joy that we are bringing to people and how, how, how impressed they are with what a, what a platform can do okay let me just go back very quickly uh, into the three segments that I talked about scientific computing uh, hyperscale and, and enterprise, and, and just tell you why uh, we think that uh, you know our opportunity in each of these markets is actually growing very quickly. Uh, so, scientific computing—that's of course uh, you know our, our, our beachhead. That's where we got started, and we are very proud of the science that is possible uh, on our platform. Uh, it, it was uh, a, a moment of pride for us. Uh, when uh, uh, the Summit supercomputer is the fastest supercomputer in the world, uh, fastest supercomputer in the U.S., uh, and there's already such fantastic science that is being done on it. You know, I was just reading some articles about what they're doing about more ca some cancer research, uh, some uh, medical, other medical research around addiction and so on, uh, uh, nu uh, nuclear energy, uh, fusion uh, types of things for renewable energy, weather prediction, just fantastic work is already being done on these supercomputers. We also have the number one supercomputer in Europe uh, with the PISDEN, and uh, uh, last summer when uh, Japan wanted to have uh, a really great uh, AI supercomputer, they wanted to have an AI supercomputer available for all of the industry to be able to use, uh, they chose NVIDIA, and so we power uh, that supercomputer also. Um, the number of applications that we're accelerating uh, is going up. Uh, we accelerate the top 15 applications that are important in high-performance computing and scientific computing. Uh, but at this stage, we actually accelerate over 600 applications. So from 450 last year to over 600 applications. And at this point, uh, you know, almost all of the applications that at, uh, that account for the vast majority of the cycles in supercomputing centers are accelerated by NVIDIA. The other reason that uh, 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 this market is actually going to become even larger is because it's not just about simulation anymore. People want to do uh, AI at the same time. Because as you can imagine, you know, it's all about getting uh, to your answers fast getting to uh, you know, scientific results fast. And if you can use AI uh, to predict where your simulations are going, you, know, you can get results faster and, and so forth. So in every field, uh, uh, do, important domain of uh, 
uh, AI, whether it's precision medicine, uh, renewable energy, or all this climate weather science that's important, uh, they are now doing both simulation and artificial intelligence. And again, because we don't have an accelerator, we have you know, a domain-specific accelerating architecture. Uh, when they're using our product, they can just do both types of workloads simultaneously, no problem, and it grows the overall tempo. All right, next is hyperscale. We are the leader in uh, deep learning training. Everybody knows that. But, you know, sometimes I get the question, is that saturating? Actually, nothing could be further from the truth. Just look at the numbers. You know, the amount of petaflops per day of training that is being done is just going, you know, straight and up to the right. And not only that, but the complexity of the networks that are now being uh, developed as people want to do more and more sophisticated AI is, is uh, increasing. So um, today when people are benchmarking training, you know, it's usually MXNet 50, uh, which they're looking at. Well, that's about 25 million parameters, okay? But the interesting AI that is going to happen is around, uh, you know, um, the AI assistants and so on. And for that, you need networks like uh, 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 automatic speech recognition, Jasper. That's 200 million parameters. Or BERT for natural language processing. That's 350 million parameters. And I'm sure we're just getting started. So there is no question that the need for training is going to just continue to increase. In fact, you can just look at uh, the QDNN downloads, and they just you know, continue to go up. And as I mentioned before, uh, MLPerf is proof, if you needed any, uh, that there is no better training platform than NVIDIA's. And we are available in every single hyperscaler. But I still believe that the big opportunity for us, uh, in addition to training, is inference. And we are starting to get traction, but I think it's just going to accelerate. And let, let me tell you why. Um, you know, in the past, when people were doing inference, uh, a lot of that was images, and it could be done in batch mode on idle CPU cycles at night. So, for example, uh, if you have, you know, these Google cars uh, roaming the streets, mapping uh, an area, and later on uh, they want to label their maps with the names of businesses on the route, well, they can do that at night. You know, there's no urgency to that. And if there are plenty of idle CPU cycles, they can use that. But if you want to do the types of interactions uh, with uh, 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 AI assistant, like uh, I think Jensen demonstrated yesterday with uh, uh, an example of that uh, with, with, with Microsoft, well, then it's a totally different story. You know, you ask a question, the first thing you have to do is you have to go from speech to text in neural network for that. Uh, then uh, the text, you have to have some natural language understanding. What is the meaning of this text? You know, what is the context? You need some kind of a natural language processing uh, a network uh, of, of run inference on that. Uh, after you've done that, then you will uh, do whatever is needed, uh, you know, get a result back or search or, or whatever. And once you've done that, then uh, you may 
displayed as an image, or you may need to then go ahead and, and take that and put that back into speech. Okay, you get it back into speech, but then that speech sounds like a robot. You don't want that sound like a robot. So you need another network to make it sound more natural uh, sounding. You know, so the, the complexity, and plus, okay, not only do you have to do all this stuff, you have to do this stuff in a few milliseconds so that it's useful. You're not going to wait for idle CPU cycles to do that, right? So you need GPU acceleration uh, for inference going forward in a big way as AI becomes more sophisticated. And, and so inference is going to be a big opportunity for us. And, you know, here is a, a, a examples of many companies that are already using uh, NVIDIA for inference. You know, ByteDance, uh, uh, I don't know if you know TikTok. It's uh, started in China, but now it's everywhere. It's short videos. Uh, they're just exploding, maybe one of the fastest growing company. They use us for video moderation, uh, you know, make sure that the content there is safe and uh, nothing that we wouldn't want uh, to have on there. PayPal is uh, using us uh, for fraud detection, billions and billions of transactions, right? Uh, but uh, they, they, by using our technology, they can reduce fraud by 10%. By the way, as I was talking to them, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, the, the types of fraud that people think of, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. All kinds of collusion between buyers and sellers and, uh, you know, fake stores being set up and, and whatnot. So uh, people can be pretty creative, but they can find it uh, out now uh, in, in, in pretty much real time uh, using our technology and they can save 10%. Not only can they save 10%, they said they can use 10, you know, 8x fewer servers. Uh, again, the TCO is just pretty, pretty incredible. Uh, and then, uh, I don't know, WeChat, Tencent, I mean, this platform um, is, is just absolutely incredible. It does everything. And a lot of the inference on that, in, including, by the way, if uh, you end up using WeChat with somebody in China, uh, you know, it will do all the natural language understanding and provide subtitles in your native language. And, and it's, uh, the results are really, really great. So there's a lot of inference going on already, but as people do more sophisticated uh, inference, you know, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a very big opportunity for us. And then finally, in the hyperscale and in the enterprise, you know, as Jensen said, data science is the big opportunity. Uh, it, it is the unicorn that uh, only, I think, NVIDIA's platform is going to be able to address uh, in, in the proper way. And already, uh, all of the, uh, the cloud providers whether it is uh, AWS SageMaker or uh, Azure ML or Google ML, they have all adopted our, our rapid acceleration uh, into their platform, and it's being uh, you know. so hyperscale. Uh, I feel you know very confident that uh, our business in this space is going to just just okay. Uh, so finally, the third segment is enterprise. Uh, this uh, was new, and first we started working with people. Uh, you know, as I said, uh, uh, the leading companies uh, is starting to work in deep learning. But then we realized, hey, these guys are actually already doing a lot of data analytics. I mean, everybody, we've been talking about the digitization of the enterprise, and, you know, they, have, they, they all know that to be competitive in this space, they have to collect data about their customers, about their suppliers, about their processes, and they have to get business insight from that uh, in this extremely competitive world that we operate in. Uh, and, and so uh, 
uh, and so far, uh, there is a lot of open source software, uh, right, for doing uh, uh, the data preparation and you know, the ETL part of it, and then, uh, uh, you know, Pandas and Scikit learn and get learn and so on to uh, accelerate the models and then display them in graphs and so forth. So there was a ton of uh, open source software already that these people were using, uh, but frankly, uh, you know, they were just not able to be uh, effective enough. Uh, and again, the reason is tons of data, uh, but by the time you actually prepare it, Jensen gave the examples, you know, yesterday uh, about uh, the, uh, I think it was the Verizon uh, network, uh, whereby, uh, you know, it takes eight days to actually massage the data. So, uh, you know, by the time they do that, it's already uh, not, uh, not current enough uh, before they can even run the models on it and so forth. So it really needs acceleration. It, it needs NVIDIA's accelerated computing platform, and that's what we've been doing. We've been working with all of these open source, uh, uh, you know, the whole open source community, all these algorithms and so on, and making sure that they can all be uh, sped up uh, using Rapids uh, so that you can actually work in more of an interactive uh, uh, way, you know, if not interactive, at least, you know, get results uh, in a couple of hours rather than uh, days and months so you can really improve your decision making and start, uh, uh, start making a real difference in your enterprise. And so data science is going to be huge. Uh, so uh, uh, that is the big, uh, big opportunity for us uh, in the enterprise space. I have a few examples here. Uh, you know, of some of the work we're doing in deep learning. I mean, there is great deep learning work being done today. Uh, uh, Continental, uh, in the automotive industry, for example, they're a big tier one uh, supplier to almost all the major car manufacturers, and they are, of course, embarked in trying to build self-driving cars, a great partner of ours, and uh, they are using lots of DGXs uh, to do everything from uh, you know, the data factory, deep learning training, simulation, and so forth. Uh, we have a great relationship with them, uh, whereby not only do they buy our products, but we help them setting up the end-to-end -end flow for, uh, for, uh, for doing, uh, you know, building uh, these networks for self-driving cars. And uh, that's just one example of, I don't know how many companies in the automotive industry that we are now engaged with. And similarly, Siemens uh, Healthineers, uh, they're a leader for medical diagnostics, uh, and they have lots of AI experts. Uh, they have about 40 AI applications uh, that they're ready to deploy, and they run hundreds of AI experiments today on their DGX supercomputers. Uh, and, you know, I'm pretty sure that every instrument company uh, is going to need to do that and, and follow their example. So you have, you have wonderful stuff uh, going on in the deep learning space, um, machine and learning and data analytics data science, uh, that is uh, the big opportunity. And already we do have uh, some uh, um, what we call lighthouse accounts, the you know, early accounts that we're working with to understand their needs and improve our platform and so forth. Uh, so Uber is using our GPUs uh, to, uh, uh, you know, just to match uh, the, the uh, supply of uh, their riders compared to the demand from, uh, sorry, supply of their drivers compared to the uh, demand uh, of, of their riders. 
I'm using these phrases, even though, you know, that's kind of how they talk about it. I think about customers and, you know, drivers. But anyway, they're trying to match the two, make sure you can get picked up at the right time quickly. And, uh, you know, they also use AI and, and, and sorry, uh, data analytics and machine learning for uh, things like uh, pricing your ride and, and so forth and fraud detection and all of those things. So Uber is a great account we're working with now. Uh, Walmart is another account that is uh, very excited about our, uh, you know, our platform. Uh, they're using it for things like forecasting. You know, you can just imagine Walmart is the largest, uh, uh, largest retailer out there. The hundreds of billions of dollars of business that they do, they can improve forecasting just by a little bit so that they have less spoilage or something that you want when you go to their, one of their stores is actually, you know, is not out of stock, you know, that has an impact of hundreds of millions of dollars to them. And so uh, they need to do that in as much real time as possible. You know, today they, they definitely use machine learning for that, but, uh, you know, it's days behind. They don't have real time uh, information, and this would make so much difference for them, and they're very excited. Okay? All right, so, you know, you can see why it's, it's very evident that our opportunity in all of these uh, segments is going to be larger and larger as we go forth. So I'm very, very excited about that. But the next thing that we want to work on, uh, you know, we want to make sure it's easy for people to adopt our technology, right? The easier I can make it for them to buy, deploy, purchase, the faster our business is going to grow. So... One of the key uh, uh, elements of that, I think, is NGC. NGC is really great. So it, it's the NVIDIA GPU cloud. We started by having it as a depository for, uh, you know, our containers. Uh, but now it's more than that. Now, it, you know, we call it our software hub. So, of course, we have uh, now 50-plus containers that has, you know, our uh, uh, HPC applications that we've accelerated. Uh, it has all of the uh, DL frameworks. Uh, it has many of, you know, the frame, the, all of the rapids, algorithms, et cetera. There are so many different uh, algorithms, and we want it to be, you know, end-to-end. -end. And so it's, this is not a simple thing to be able to uh, pull these applications together, but to make it easy for people to use because we just take it all, use all the best libraries to optimize the full stack, and then we just containerize it and put it on, on, on uh, NGC Cloud, right? Uh, so, and that number uh, is just going to continue to grow. Make it very easy for people to go uh, get at uh, AI computing, uh, data science computing, okay? But we're not stopping there. Uh, we have uh, uh, not just the frameworks and trainers, but we have the training scripts for these frameworks. We even have pre-trained networks so that you don't have to start from a scratch. You can use, uh, you know, start with these and then do um, transfer learning on your own data and come up with networks that are optimized uh, for your own work. And then finally, we are even putting some of the key industry workflows up in the cloud uh, for our customers. So two of them around medical imaging, you know, Clara, some of those libraries, uh, trained models for that, and, uh, 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 and for Metropolis, some for, uh, IVA applications and so forth. Uh, they are intelligent video app, uh, analytics. Uh, those models are available 
uh, in the NGC cloud now. I think this is going to make it a lot easier uh, for our customers to actually start doing real AI work, uh, and, uh, and that, that will be good for our business. By the way, you can deploy these. Uh, you know, NGC Cloud, I just want to reinforce, is available everywhere. You can do it on-prem, or you can do it in the cloud. And in fact, you can do it in any of the clouds uh, there are, you know, on-prem on our OEM, any of our OEM systems that are certified for NGC, and of course you can do it on DGX. Okay, some of the other things that we are doing to uh, 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 make our technology easy for people to deploy. Uh, one is, I mentioned it earlier, these reference architecture partners. You know, when we first got started, we, uh, we introduced the DGX appliance, and we said, that's great. You know, we've got the whole stack all optimized, and people can get started right away. And then we would find, you know, they would put our DGXs in one room, and they would put the storage, you know, in another room and connect it by a one gigabit Ethernet or something. And then they would say, hey, the performance is not very good. And, and so, we, you know, we quickly realized that uh, we can't just solve the compute part of the problem. You know, we've got to solve the overall data center problem so people can deploy our technology. And we started having discussions with the leaders in storage, such as Network Appliance, Pure, EMC, uh, IBM, and so on, and, uh, you know, the, the networking companies, uh, such as uh, Mellanox, uh, Arista, and Cisco. And together, we have developed these pods, these reference architectures. By the way, the reference, it's, it's about, you know, domain acceleration. Uh, so, and it's about, so it's not that you can have one reference architecture that does everything. Uh, this is a pretty, um, you know, this is uh, important work and takes some effort. So we have these ref pods for different workloads. You know, it may be a different pod for training versus simulation versus what have you, like data science or whatever. So we are working with them on actually putting these pods together to accelerate, not just, you know, to accelerate at the data center level. And uh, uh, it's, it's pretty exciting. Uh, to have these applications, they're all pre-configured, and once it's done, we can show people what the, uh, what the results are going to be. So, you know, these proof of concepts that, frankly, drive you crazy, you know, they'll buy one and it takes six months for them to prove it out. Now, all of that stuff, hopefully, can be, you know, condensed into uh, just a few days, hopefully, or at least uh, a week or so. And then you can prove it out that, yes, you're going to get this kind of uh, performance improvement in your workload and, uh, uh, you know, people, the customers are very happy about that. Um, we have some alliances now with uh, uh, the Colo data center providers. Uh, uh, there is, uh, if you're doing scale-up computing, uh, there are certain requirements that traditional IT data centers are not used to handling uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the amount of uh, power that is required and just the density of, of the computing and so on, the cooling systems that may be necessary. Uh, and so, uh, uh, you know, if, if our customers uh, are having some difficulty working with their IT department, well, just go deploy it in one of these Colo centers, right? They are now available, and they, they know exactly how to build this out for you. Uh, finally, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, again, um, you know, Jensen talked about we have two types of computing that we're focused on. Early on in scientific computing sector, we've been focused on those capability machines, scale-up computing, the supercomputers. Um, but as we go into 
deployment, whether it is uh, inference in the data center uh, or, uh, uh, you know, for data science, uh, I think it's both, as he said. But uh, today, a lot of the people are just doing inference on uh, all of these uh, volume servers that they have, right? So by making T4 available in all of the high volume servers from these OEMs, uh, we can allow them to do uh, inference and data science right in their uh, current data center. And, you know, millions, I don't know, 20 million or something of these servers are sold every year. Uh, and, of course, you have, uh, um, you know, Spark and so on to try uh, as an attempt to make all of these, uh, 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 these uh, distributed computing environment work as one, and we're accelerating Spark. So that's all great. Uh, and then over time, uh, I think as the workloads get bigger and bigger and they want to do it faster, people are going to realize, yeah, uh, it's, uh, you know, we can do it in the distributed environment uh, with uh, traditional servers and, and with T4 in them, or uh, there are many uh, times when people are going to want, data scientists are going to want, uh, you know, the fastest supercomputer with lots of memory and so on to go uh, uh, do data science. And we're going to be able to address, address both of those capabilities. So T4 is now available uh, from all of our, uh, all the major OEM suppliers, and we are no longer limited to just this, you know, this, the capability machines. We also have the capacity machines, the scale-out machines, which really widens the market, and that's available for us. Uh, and it's, again, all of this stuff is NGC certified, uh, uh, and, and so we know that it's going to support our platform and all the applications that have been uh, that have been developed on it. Okay, so that's it. You know, a lot is happening in our space. Uh, the data center market opportunity uh, is, is a big one for NVIDIA. I'm very excited about it. Uh, at this point, there's no question accelerated computing is the path forward. And uh, if somebody ever talks to you about a new ASIC that came on, you know, please remember it's about the accelerated computing platform. It's not about accelerators. And, uh, I, I, you know, I feel quite confident in our position when it comes to that. Uh, it is all about the acceleration stack and uh, uh, data science. Uh, that, uh, that is the next big opportunity. Um, and not only is the opportunity big, but we are taking a lot of steps to make it easy for our customers to purchase and deploy our, our solutions uh, so that the business can grow faster. Okay? Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, we will now have a brief 10-minute coffee break.
Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We will resume our program in five minutes. Five minutes. Thank you. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We will resume momentarily. Please take, please take this opportunity to find your seats and uh, silence your cell phones. Thank you so much. All my days are spent All my cars Every day As my heart is here Oh, my In the
Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Next, we have Rob Chango with Automotive. Hi, everyone. I'm Rob Chango. Uh, I'm going to talk to you about automotive. Uh, I'll give you an update on our strategy. You guys know our strategy in automotive is an end-to-end -end platform. It's an open platform. And it's for building autonomous cars. So what I'll do in, the, in my presentation is I'll give you an update on uh, how that business is growing. Uh, I'll give you an update on the market drivers, what's driving the business, uh, what are the things that are important. Uh, I'll give you an update on our strategies and uh, what the size of the opportunity is. And then I'll talk to you about our progress, uh, what are the things you can look at to see whether or not we're making progress towards our, our objectives, okay? So, first of all, in terms of growth, there's a lot of different growth factors that you can look at in our business, uh, but there's a couple I'll, I'll touch on. Uh, on the revenue side, uh, I guess it was uh, another record year for automotive, but uh, we're on looking at a much, much bigger opportunity. So the thing that I think I would touch on and highlight uh, as something that was very significant this past year. So if you remember last year at Investor Day, we were just launching Xavier. We had announced that Xavier is going to be going out. We said that Xavier was the processor to power the autonomous vehicle, to power the self-driving algorithms, to power the cockpit, and we were just launching it. So you know that as part of our open platform, we work with literally hundreds of companies sensors, tier ones, car makers, truck makers, all sorts of different vehicles. And during this past year, we basically went from zero to over 80 companies that are now building on top of the Xavier platform. So this is, I think, one of the most significant things. The Xavier platform, of course, is software compatible to the previous platform, yet people who are looking to drive an autonomous vehicle and get it out soon made the move from our previous generation to the Drive Xavier platform, and that's really important. Another thing that's important, if you look at this past year, is that it's not just that people started developing on Xavier, but the different kinds of vehicles that are now being developed using Xavier as the base platform. 
of course, Toyota this past year, and you saw the announcement yesterday. But separately, just individually, Toyota has selected Xavier as the platform. We announced that. Um, I highlight a, a few other examples just because they're interesting. Volvo selected Xavier as their platform, but they selected it for Level 2 Plus. Level 2 Plus translates to mass market vehicles. NVIDIA is not only being used, or up until then you had seen us in mostly robo-taxis or high-end Level 4 type vehicles. Now they are viewing Level 2 Plus as an important first platform to engage on to get it out soon. And this Level 2 Plus is a very high-function, fully-featured autopilot solution that we call Drive AP2X. And there's a number of reasons why Level 2 Plus became more important this year, and I'll talk about that. On the, at the other end of the spectrum from Level 2 Plus, we announced that robo-taxis are being built using Xavier as the base platform. Xavier, or Pegasus, as we call the development platform for Xavier. We announced this past year that Daimler, uh, we're working with Daimler to develop their robo-taxi solution. So not just cars ranging from level two plus to robo-taxis, but also different kinds of autonomous vehicles. This past year, you'll now see that there are forklifts, autonomous forklifts being developed on Xavier. There's construction equipment, earth movers, now being developed on Xavier. There's last-mile delivery vehicles, delivery bots, UAVs, UGVs, a whole world of autonomous vehicles being developed. And that really brings up and illustrates the fact that the world of autonomous vehicles is much bigger to us today than it was last year. It's not just about cars and trucks. We believe that every vehicle will be autonomous. And the reasons are compelling. They're different for every type of vehicle, but in every, in every case, they're not being developed just because this is a new feature that you'd like to add on. There's usually a critical problem or something happening where autonomous vehicles can uniquely solve a problem. So for example, in cars, of course, we all aware that 3,000 people die every day in the world. We literally have a 9-11 every day in the world due to human-caused accidents. In trucking, it's a little bit of a different problem. We live in the Amazon era. Today, there's a shortage of 60,000 truckers in the United States that's expected to triple by 2026. Furthermore, with electronic logging devices that are now required on truckers, that limits the amount of time that they can drive per day and further reduces the amount of productivity that can be brought out into the road. Self-driving level two plus solutions for truckers allow the truckers to extend the amount of miles that they can drive on the road because the amount of miles where they are not driving but resting doesn't have to be logged as driving time. This is a significant changer, um, game changer for people in that industry. In the trucking industry, of course, you're, you're feeding the demand for delivery. There's 120 million households in the United States, half of them, 60, or 130 million, sorry, 65 million of those households are Amazon Prime subscribers. So this is placing a demand on delivery. 
mobility services, robo-taxis, buses, the cost of ownership. We have an entire generation of people, young adults today, who don't want to own a car. The cost of ownership for using services is lower, and also the footprint on the planet, the amount of parking lots can be reduced. And then the whole world of autonomous vehicles. It turns out that there's a thousand accidents, a thousand fatalities, sorry, that occur every day related to workplace accidents. 20% of those accidents are specifically related to construction. So this year you saw Komatsu announce that they're using Xavier to develop an earth mover that can look around with cameras placed on the earth mover and make sure that um, you can detect workers that are around it and make sure that no harm comes to them. Forklifts, delivery bots, tractors, agriculture. In, com in countries like Japan, farming has become a crisis. The average age of a farmer in Japan is 67. The amount of farmers in Japan is going to dro has dropped in half in the last decade. And autonomous vehicles to help with agriculture and food production are, are not just a good idea. It's a strategic imperative uh, to develop. The result of all of these things and more is that you are seeing, um, and this is projected autonomous vehicle shipments by 2025, 30,000 heavy trucks, 750,000 agricultural vehicles, 2.5 million commercial robots, um, 1.1 million UAVs. Okay. So the world of autonomous vehicles is much bigger uh, than it was. To address, to address this opportunity, there's really, um, or to address this market, there's really three growth opportunities. There's three areas where NVIDIA has developed a platform solution and what we call the end-to-end -end solution. And the end-to-end -end solution really consists of, number one, you have to build computers that go into the vehicles so that you can autonomously drive. Number two, you have to train and develop deep neural networks to create the algorithms for those cars, both in the cockpit as well as in the car to drive. And then third, you have to test and validate those algorithms to make sure that the vehicle that you put on the road is safe. These are not three individual separate random pieces of equipment. The reason why NVIDIA decided that we will build a car end-to-end -end is so that we could deeply understand the problem. And in the process of doing that, we of course learned that all of these things are essential to building an autonomous vehicle. You cannot build or deploy or test an, an autonomous vehicle without these things. And if we need them, then other people need them. And that turns out to be true. The end result of this is that on the drive computer side, given all of the market dynamics I just described, we have a $25 billion TAM opportunity driven in the short term by level two plus, level five. Um, we have a $3 billion opportunity on the DGX side, just in terms of how many car makers are there, uh, how many cars do you need to develop algorithms for, millions of, um, millions of images you have to collect 
per DNN, 10 plus DNNs that have to be developed per car, and then from that you can do the math. This is only just getting started. Imagine all of these vehicles, more models, more cars, more vehicles coming out. Of course, this will just grow for us. And then finally, the testing and validation. The testing and validation really has to do with you need a way to accelerate your testing and validation because otherwise you are going to be uh, spending hundreds of billions of driving miles for hundreds of years to test adequately, make sure that the car is working. So um, just based on the kind of engagements we have now, the type of miles that have to be driven, we believe that this is a $2 billion opportunity for us. At the high level, these are the opportunities. Specifically, there's a couple things that are really driving the market for us. Over this past year, I think you're aware that Tesla Model 3 became the best-selling premium car in the United States. In those cars, in Model 3s, Model S's, uh, model, uh, these different models, the autopilot function has an attach rate of close to 80%. They are selling that autopilot and generating an estimated roughly $1.5 billion of incremental revenue based on the fact that it is an excellent autopilot. It is operating with multiple DNNs, surround cameras, and it has high performance computing that's powering the whole thing. In contrast to very simple ADAS solutions, which can provide assistance, there's nothing wrong with them, but they just simply are not a full function driving autopilot. This is creating a a market for a very full-featured autopilot level 2 plus. So when you look, for example, at our announcement with Volvo of a level 2 plus solution, you notice that this solution is being targeted at mass market. It's not just for a premium car. It's for top to bottom vehicles. We think this is an important market driver. On the training and development side, of course, you have to collect data, you have to label data, you have to train, but not only that, you heard Jensen talk yesterday, you, saw, you heard Jay talk about the new opportunity of data science. Car makers also collect enormous amounts of data, not just the ones that are about training and developing autonomous vehicles, so they collect data on customer behavior. They do pricing analysis. All of these things we believe are going to be opportunities for us um, in the data center of the automakers. And then finally, validation. Simulation now is not just viewed as an option for deploying a car. You see increasingly articles coming out now that say that simulation is the key to accelerating the safe, safety and arrival of autonomous driving, and we believe that. We also know, if you, you, you're aware, that Rand Corporation issued a report where they said that um, they did a mathematical analysis of what it would actually take to test and validate a self-driving car and they came to the conclusion that it would be just about impossible. You would have to drive billions of miles with thousands of drivers for hundreds of years. So therefore, you need an alternative solution where you can test for corner cases and, um, and a lot of the uh, things we announced here at GTC about drive constellation are going to be the solution for that problem. So, all of these things, the opportunity, the market drivers, of course, form 
the basis of our products and our strategies. When we say end-to-end, -end, it means from driving, training, and validation. And when we say open, it means that we have a massive ecosystem of hundreds of partners that can plug in, they can develop solutions on top of our platform. Our customers and partners are welcome to use as little or as much of our solution as they like. For example, let me illustrate. We announced Drive AP2X yesterday. This is our full autopilot level two plus solution. We have three tier ones that have announced, three auto suppliers that have announced that they're building on the level two plus. Uh, one is Continental, one is ZF, and one is Vionier. Those three actually are the perfect example of how the ecosystem has the choice and flexibility to develop on our platform. ZF uses our software top to bottom. Not just the drive OS layer, not just the API layer, DriveWorks, but also all the way through into applications. Continental uses part of our software stack. They use our perception, and then they supply a lot of their own path planning and a lot of their own um, parking solution. And then Volvo and Zenuity, using VNR, are developing, they develop on top of the drive OS software layer, CUDA, QDNN, TensorIT, and then they develop the software stack on their own. Perfect illustration of the difference of three different partners building on top of the NVIDIA platform. On the driving side, our solution starts with our platform drive AGX, with our software, and of course, all of the complexity, everything having to do with perception, localization, and path planning, and all of those break down into a whole bunch of different um, um, algorithms and solutions. Very, very complex, very compute intensive, and an enormous amount of software. Um, yesterday, you heard us announce, I think we've shown previously that NVIDIA has a world-class perception stack based on our artificial intelligence. We've also shown world-class localization to HD map, working with every mapping company in every continent. Zenrin in Japan, Navinfo in China, here, TomTom, across North America and Europe. But yesterday we announced Safety Force Field. We announced the mechanism for doing world-class path planning and creating a computationally safe methodology for a car to navigate in a dynamic world with lots of moving objects, and then to take that methodology and transform it into driving software that will allow an autonomous vehicle to drive safely. The end result of all of this, together with our tools and then an ecosystem on top of it, makes up our driving strategy and our driving platform, an enormous amount of work. On the training and development side, in the last two years, since we first started engaging automotive companies, we went from basically a handful of customers to over 60 automotive companies today that are training and developing using DGX for automotive. Uh, this is obviously a significant increase. It, it's, it makes up uh, collectively in that number. There's 25 car makers, 15 tier ones, truck makers, mobility service providers, mapping companies, and startups. And by the way, it's not just customers of NVIDIA Drive. For example, here at GTC, you can go listen to BMW present on training on a DGX at GTC. 
and BMW, of course, in their current generation are using uh, Intel. So DGX represents an opportunity and a, and a product that the entire world can use to train and develop their self-driving cars. And then finally, on the validation and test side, we announced Drive Constellation. And it's really a three-pronged approach to how we test and validate a car. First of all, we do what we call component level SIL or software in the loop. Imagine that you can take the data that you have and play it back to your computer. And then you can do regression testing. You can change things. You can say, hey, let me remove a radar. Let me have a camera fail. Let's see how the algorithm responds. And you can do this in super time. Okay? For example, you can have several months of driving that occurs within a fraction of the time. We also allow you to do Drive Constellation Hill, or hardware in the loop. So the Drive Constellation box, or solution, is two different boxes. One box that is simulating or synthesizing the world. It, is, it creates the world. And the other box is where you put your driving computer. It thinks that it's in a self-driving car. There are leads that come in that represent sensors. The sensor images and, and feedback that comes in are simulated. The drive computer there drives and sends out actuation signals back to the synthesis box, the simulation box, and as a result, you're now able to test it. When you're driving normally, you know, there's companies that are talking about drive and you drive millions of miles. You know that most of the time, nothing's happening. You're driving on 101, and everything's fine. It's a sunny day, and you're in the lane, and you go. Obviously, in simulation, you can create challenging scenarios much more quickly than waiting for them to occur in real life. So what we show here at GTC, and if you have a chance, go check it out. It's amazing. At a touch of a button, we can make it rain. We can make it snow. We can make it nighttime. We can make it foggy. And... Uh, and just confuse the bejesus out of the car. <laughs> so all of this is, I think, essential to accelerating um, the testing and validation. Now, this strategy, this strategy, which we came up with, was born out of our needs to develop our platform. And as I said earlier, um, if we need it, then why wouldn't somebody else need it? Now, up until yesterday, you might say, how can you prove that? Or how can you show a validation point that this actually is true or this hypothesis works? And, um, and today, the best way I would illustrate it is to just highlight the announcement with Toyota. The Toyota announcement is exactly that engagement model. It is a recognition of the fact that all of these things are essential for the world's largest automaker to recognize that first we need the computational power in the car to drive the algorithms. Second, we have to create the simulations to test and validate it. We have to have the computer, we have to have the development vehicle, and of course we have to have AI for the AV vehicles. This is NVIDIA's automotive business strategy applied to the world's largest automaker. It is the model for our engagement and it is the end result of what we intended with our strategy. So we were excited to announce Toyota. We obviously believe that this is what's needed in order to scale, to create lots of vehicles across all of this different world of autonomous vehicles. And then of course, we, we look forward to making more announcements 
in the future. Aside from this, if you, if you ask what are the key things that occurred this year that you could look at that are key individual milestones or accomplishments towards our, our goal, I would, I would really break it into our innovation, our product milestones, as well as partners. So if you look at them, a lot of them I mentioned, you know, Constellation, our simulation solution, Safety Force Field, which is NVIDIA now moving to the third part of what's required for a self-driving car. We've shown world-class perception. We've shown world-class mapping, localization HD map. And now we're showing world-class solution for path planning. Drive AP2X, we believe level two plus is now important. I think you'll see a lot of car makers make decisions on level two plus this year. My route, the reality is, is that HD maps don't exist everywhere. So where they don't exist, NVIDIA will create a personal map for you. It'll be generated by the car based on where you drive so that you can drive uh, safely. All of the things we show, 50 mile loop, Pegasus, we now have taken our graphics expertise and now leveraged it into creating the confidence view so you can trust a self-driving car. It's not enough to just have the car drive. The car has to communicate back to you what it sees so you can trust the car and believe that you're safe. Hyperion, which is the extension of our development strategy from our SDK, we can now put our SDK into a car. The second we make a change on our software stack and do an OTA, you as a partner get it instantly. And that's part of our strategy. Our simulator, Tubsud, this is, if, you're, if you know Tubsud, they are uh, one of the safety experts in the world. They, safe, they certify various processes of developing a car. This past year, they certified NVIDIA as being, um, passing a certification for being able to develop a silicon semiconductor solution for a car, and this is an we're the only uh, semiconductor supplier to be able to reach this. In addition, um, we are now the only non-car maker company certified to drive self-driving cars in China. China, of course, very important, not just to us, but to a lot of our customers and partners, global brand companies, as well as the local companies in China. And then, of course, global mapping. On the partner ecosystem side, you notice, I won't go through every one, but you notice that they're grouped into not just cars, but trucks, not just level two plus, but robo-taxis, autonomous vehicles, Yamaha, Komatsu, and of course, Chinese companies. All of these are announcements that were made this past year, and I believe validate uh, our approach. Okay, so just to wrap up, um, our strategy is simple. We believe NVIDIA is the only company that is delivering an end-to-end -end open platform for building autonomous solutions, as evidenced by the things I talked about. On the driving side, we believe the world of AV is bigger than ever. It's not just about cars and trucks, and I've shown you some of the design wins on these new types of autonomous vehicles. It's a big opportunity, and I believe the strategies that I talked about are game changers for a lot of the car makers and uh, certainly uh, you see some of the evidence of that, especially with the announcement with Toyota. Um, for training and development, we're just getting started. Collecting, training, and analyzing data are essential for autonomous vehicles. 
We've now grown to over 60 automotive companies on our DGX business. And like I said, it's just getting started. And then finally, on the validation side, drive constellation simulation systems are now available. And the drive simulation system, like every other part of our platform, is open. We have multiple partners uh, from IPG developing physics models and sensor models to Cognata, who's developing traffic scenarios, existing simulation solutions that already exist in the market that can now tie in to our platform because of our open platform strategy. Okay? Thank you very much. And uh, at this point, I'm going to introduce uh, Colette Kress, our CFO. Okay, still morning. We're a little bit behind, but we can catch up. I'm going to try and just summarize in total what you've heard um, throughout the teams, um, and then we'll uh, take that time afterwards to open up for uh, Q&A. But let's just talk through a couple numbers. How about that? All right. So another record year. This is actually our fifth consecutive record year in terms of revenue. Uh, as we finished uh, fiscal year 19 at 11.7 billion and growing more than $2 billion year over year. A growth rate of about 20% uh, fueled by all of our different platforms, which we'll talk about. Our gross margin, also a record in terms of its overall growth, in reaching 61.7%. Uh, Keep in mind there is still in there, uh, we would have been higher, except having to write down um, some of the overall inventory later in the year. But since the absence of our overall IP licensing, our value-added platforms continue to drive our overall gross margin up. Our operating income, also a record year, and reaching $4.4 billion and growing faster than our overall revenue at 22%. Overall profit, whether you look at overall net income or EPS, growing significantly faster at approximately 35% as well. Now, when we think about the market platforms that we just addressed uh, throughout the room, you heard from three of them, four of them in, in terms of here, all reaching overall record level. And this is in a view to look at our overall growth rate over the last three years and the compounded growth rate that we have seen. First, starting with gaming. Gaming, in terms of its long-term growth rate, has been growing 30% over this period of time, even this last year growing 13%. But as you think about this going forward, you should think about the overall gaming as being an overall entertainment industry. Uh, Fish was up here talking about what you should see in terms of the growth drivers as we move forward. RTX is here, a new overall architecture to take us forward for the next couple years, and we now have a full portfolio of RTX available. Talked quite a bit in terms of the overall ASPs and how they have overall helped our portfolio in the past, but as you can see, there's even more opportunities as we move forward. The overall unit growth in terms of gaming is definitely there as well. As we think about the refresh opportunity of our existing gamers, and as we know, there are more gamers coming on board every single day. Those in terms of starting at a younger age and also staying in terms of longer in terms of well in terms of their 40s. So this in terms of will continue as we hope uh, moving forward. We also talked about new opportunities and things that we have seen most recently, the growth of overall notebooks and the use of notebooks and the mobility to um, uh, continue their overall gaming uh, uh, experience. Additionally, we talked about streaming gaming 
And now we have an opportunity to again address this very wide and uh, growing market in a new form factor and for gamers that have not actually been in touch with it. Now, pro-visualization. Pro-visualization, also extension in terms of the graphics that we see on the gaming side, but taking that to the overall enterprise. We've seen an expansion of this market um, as well, largely focused in terms of the mobility of the overall workstations. The thin and light, the overall performance improvement has expanded, and you see in terms of the growth rate that we see in ProViz, 15% over the last three years, growing quite nicely. But you also have RTX coming to overall pro-visualization. You also have heard in terms of yesterday our focus in terms of the creatives out there and how they can improve the overall rendering process with ProViz. Data center. A business over the last three years has pretty much almost 10x increase. Just three years ago, this was a $300 million business, and we're now approaching $3 billion. I think the whole day today, as well as yesterday, was really focused about the breadth and depth in terms of the overall solutions that we have for overall data center. That means in terms of focusing not only on supercomputing, focusing on high-performance computing, something that we've been working on for 10 years, but the addition of hyperscales over the last couple years, but now the growth that we can see in terms of the enterprise. That focuses on many different types of workloads, focus in terms of deep learning, which you know us very well by in terms of overall training, but also what we have been able to do in terms of expanding to overall inferencing, our growth in terms of high-performance computing and adding overall AI and acceleration in there as well. But then lastly, we're focusing on many of the different workloads that the overall enterprises uses in the expansion of the market, from data scientists to the overall focus in terms of rendering as well. Automotive. On, um, on the surface, in terms of we're just getting started, we're still looking at a three-year CAGR of 26%. That 26% is largely due uh, to our base of overall infotainment systems. But over the last couple of years, you've seen us also grow in terms of incorporating AI within terms of the cockpit and our initial overall work in terms of what we can do for autonomous driving. This is going to be broad and far in terms of where we can actually address the market using our solutions in terms of automotive. Not just thinking about what will be inside of the car, but what will be in their data centers and what we will do to help them as they continue to have these cars on the road in terms of the testing, the validation, and other pieces. So again, our overall portfolio all in terms of in growth opportunities as we move forward. Our gross margins. Our gross margins continuing to grow over this three-year period of time, and our value-added platforms continuing to be the most uh, important part of our overall gross margin and what has driven that. We'll talk about this further in terms of the need of overall software in terms of our platforms to bring them to market to allow people to overall use that. But as you know, the software is not necessarily included in terms of our gross margin. That will be incorporated in terms of our OPEX. So overall growth in terms of our gross margins and definitely an opportunity to continue overall growing. So we broke out here our gross margins in a slightly different um, uh, view in terms of our overall gross profit. Where do we get the majority of our overall gross profit? More than 70% of our overall gross profits stems from gaming and overall data center, which obviously takes up a good portion of our overall business. 
But keep in mind, one of the highlights that we talked about on our last earnings calls was the impact of inter and intra overall segments in terms of there. Mix is the largest driver in the near term of our overall gross margins. Mix both in terms of between our overall segments as well as in our overall segments. The black lines here indicate in terms of the ranges that we can see based on the portfolio that we could sell in, uh, in those two uh, major overall segments. So these overall drive our gross margins as we continue to build a larger and larger proliferation of products in terms of the data center as well as the different overall gross margins and ASPs that we have um, in terms of our gaming business. Operating expenses. Our operating expenses business, uh, excuse me, our operating expenses here uh, grew uh, about 27% this last year, uh, trying to keep up with the growth that we have in terms of our product portfolio. Very well uh, structured overall OPEX because we can have an, uh, an overall architecture consistent across uh, and that unified architecture allows us to be quite efficient in terms of the amount of spending that we need to do. Our outlook for fiscal year 20 as we move forward is a slightly lower rate in terms of what we had seen in this last couple years. We're expecting about um, a high single digit growth rate or a little bit over 3 billion, 3.1 um, overall growth. Our operating leverage. So we talked about this a bit in terms of um, what we have seen uh, in terms of the leverage that we get from having a single overall architecture. Just five years ago, our engineers that we had were mostly focused in terms of on hardware, meaning we had a larger organization in hardware than we did in terms of software. As you've seen us talk about the overall software over the last couple days, You'll see now in fiscal year 19, we have a larger percentage of software engineers, a significantly larger amount of overall software engineers than we do overall hardware. When we think about our R&D, therefore, by those platforms, and starting at the bottom in terms of the underlying architecture, the GPU architecture, that makes up 40% of our overall um, hardware, excuse me, our overall R&D costs. Our software layer is therefore about 30% of the overall cost as we string that across all of the different GPUs and all of the different systems that we have. On top of that, we just have a small percentage, about 25%, that allows us to go industry-specific, market-specific in terms of building out our individual solutions, uh, whether that be for automotive, whether that be focused on AI, or whether that be focused on uh, in terms of what we need for um, graphics as well. Our operating margin expansion has been focused on this unified um, model. It allows us to um, overall expand our margins quite nicely over the last three years um, and continue to effectively uh, invest in our businesses without having uh, to worry about the overall margin in increase. We'll probably see this continue as we go forward as well as we look at this as a very key area for us to focus in terms of growth. Our cash flow and overall cash balances. Our cash flow has grown quite about 3x over the last three years, and we're reaching about $3 billion or $3.1 billion of this last year. That's allowed us uh, to produce an overall cash balance of 7.4 by continuing, though, with our overall capital return program. 
Our capital return program is an integral part of our overall shareholder value and delivery. And since 2013, we've delivered more than $7 billion to shareholders, or approximately 70% of our free cash flow. What this has allowed us to do in this last year is we started out the year with a little bit uh, smaller in terms of capital uh, return. We initiated our intent for capital return for the new year and started that at the end of uh, fiscal year 19. So what we have remaining in terms of our intent for fiscal year 20 is about $2.3 billion uh, to return to shareholders over this period. Where and use of our overall cash. As we look backwards in terms of 19, very in line with where we had talked about the last time we had met, we'd focused primarily in terms of investing back into the business. You can see this was $2.8 billion invested back. We focused in terms of also CapEx. A lot of that CapEx is focused on our engineers and allowing them to give the tools, the supercomputers that they need uh, to build in order for them to eventually sell them, but also our focus in terms of the capital return um, is the key areas that we, did, that we focused on. As we move into fiscal year 20, fiscal year 20 you'll see about the same side of overall OPEX, a little bit higher, maybe about 100 to 200 million more. You'll see about the same amount of CapEx of approximately about 600, focused not only on uh, our internal engineers, but also in terms of the facilities that we need. But you'll see a large amount that we'll be able to take the cash that we have on the balance sheet to execute our overall transaction for $6.9 billion. We'll continue with our capital return and finish that out as well of the use of our overall cash. Highlighting here, the title says, our outlook remains unchanged. We're in the middle of Q1, just to remind you that our Q1 was not necessarily about uh, normalized and uh, in terms of overall returning uh, back to where we believe we have in terms of the growth opportunities in front of us. It's $2.2 billion in overall revenue. Uh, we are still working through the excess channel inventory that we have in, in gaming. Uh, we indicated back in November that we thought that would take about one to two quarters to work through. We're on track and we feel confident by the end of Q2 that we will be uh, completed with our overall excess inventory that we have in the channel. You've seen the initial signs of that as we've continued to start selling in our newer platforms into the market from the 2060, the 1660, and the 1660 Ti. Our overall gross margin for the current quarter is at 59, uh, which is up 300 basis points from where we just finished this last quarter as well. Our operating expenses will remain flat with last quarter. We'll see that slightly uptick in the next couple quarters as we go, but that's what you'll see to get and reach that overall uh, growth rate for the full year. We get questions quite a bit that says, you're often giving us overall full year guidance on overall OPEX to help steer us on something uh, that you can uh, definitely control. We provided our full year in terms of operating expenses, in terms of looking at high single-digit um, overall growth over the prior year. But we also took this opportunity to provide full-year revenue uh, range of overall guidance. We look at that to be flight to, uh, flat to slightly down. The flat to slightly down was to help the uh, teams understand what we saw in fiscal year 19. Uh, we took this opportunity after overall cryptocurrency to find a quarter uh, that was not tainted with cryptocurrency to come up with what we believe is a normalized run rate 
for overall uh, gaming. That means we took Q2, Q3, Q4, as well as our Q1 guidance and looked at that in terms of the overall desktop business and concluded on average we'd look at about a $900 million quarter. On top of that, we have our overall console and notebook business, which equates to approximately $500 million. That's a $1.4 billion normalized gaming baseline for us to start. And again, remember, Q1 doesn't necessarily reflect our overall normalized as we're still working through that excess inventory. But that allows us, as we move forward, to grow from this point forward. It allows us to uh, look at the back half of the year as reaching some of the growth potential of the great opportunities that we have uh, produced today. So that's what we have in terms of our full year um, overall guidance for revenue. Mellanox. We're excited to announce um, that we have signed an agreement uh, uh, to acquire overall Mellanox. This is part of the overall transaction summary and the key points of that. Uh, we will uh, purchase it for $6.9 billion in overall enterprise value. We expect this deal to close at the end of our overall calendar 2019. And right now we will work through the overall regulatory approvals that we need in terms of in the U.S. and overall China. We're excited to bring um, uh, the company uh, on board and we'll be working now uh, to get to uh, better understand how we'll overall integrate them forward. But again, we'll have to wait in terms of the overall regulatory approval. At the time that we close, we'll have a discussion in terms of uh, what we expect in terms of guidance afterwards, how we will incorporate an overall, um, incorporate uh, overall Mellanox in terms of our reporting structure. Okay, that was our short summary, and we are here for Q&A. I'm going to invite Jensen up here, um, and uh, we will open up, hopefully turn on the lights out here, because right now it's a little dark, uh, for us to take questions from the group. Hey, good job, Colette. How come she didn't get I enjoy listening to my team talk. Whoa. Is it possible for us to turn on the lights so we can see the see there much? Thank you for the presentation. Um, Toshia Hari from, from Goldman Sachs. Hi, Toshia. Hi, Jensen. Um, in, in one of Jeff's slides, um, I think he showed the trailing five-year CAGR for the gaming business, both in terms of units as well as ASPs. Um, it was encouraging to see the ASP number. I think it was 14% accelerate from what you had showed last year. Um, you know, more importantly, considering all the things you guys talked about in terms of the esports momentum, the, the Max Q initiative, the traction you've seen so far in, in Turing, how do you think about the next five years uh, for that business, both in terms of units and ASPs? And related to that, does Intel's intention to, to re-enter the market over the next couple of years impact how you think about, um, or how, the, how does that impact your thought process, if at all? Thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll answer the second one first. The, um, you know, we, we, have to, we have to pay respect to, to all of our competition. I mean, this, we stay alert and, and um, uh, we compete with, with uh, we've competed with 120 graphics companies in our company's history. Uh, at one point in time, we competed against 35 at the same time, and uh, there were large companies, there were small companies. 
And um, and so we're we're quite adept at at competition. And this is you're looking at a company that's incredibly focused and incredibly intense. And from 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 the from the leadership all the way down, there's just so much technical depth and and uh, so much passion for this business. That I, I think we're going to remain quite competitive. Um, but but nonetheless, we 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 always should stay alert. Uh, in terms of growth rate, <clears throat> here's the way I think about it. There's a there's a couple of there's some there's some um, numbers that should inform us. Uh, on the one hand, it is recognized that that the PC is a gaming uh, gaming platform, a host for a gaming platform, and that GeForce is essentially a game console. A game console has a reasonable price point in people's head of somewhere somewhere at the end of a life, at the end, about $300, and at the beginning, around four to $500. That's kind of an ASP in the head of a gamer. Does that make sense? If you're a gamer and you're going out to buy a, a game platform to play games, in the case of a, a PC, because it's a good host for the game console, they can upgrade that host several times with a new game console. So every couple of years, they could buy into a new GeForce, and they can they can imagine paying some three to $500, somewhere in that range, for something that delivers performances much better than a game console would. It's a very logical, sensible thing for them. That informs it. There's a couple of other, other ways to inform it. Unlike a game console that's largely for playing games, PCs could be used for eSports. And there's two types of people, there, not two types, there, there are many ways that you can play sports. You can play sports because you enjoy it, and you can play sports because you want to win. And, and I think that, that another way to, to think about, think about um, uh, ASPs is for the people who are, who are, uh, who are uh, athletes or aspirational athletes, or uh, they just really love to win. They need to have better gear. And that's one of the reasons why uh, you see in eSports uh, the, 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 uh, the, 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 the high-end GPUs are like 2080 Ti's. And they want 2080 Ti's because they want to run never missing a heartbeat at 120, 150 frames per second. Uh, many gamers can click 300 clicks a minute. And so... So when they click, when they click, they want to make sure that they get a shot off before the next person. And, and so at that kind of frame rate, you're not going to miss a click. And so, so this, this um, uh, buying the best gear is another reason for that. The rest of it is production value is increasing all the time. Uh, Max-Q increases ASPs. Max-Q increases ASP because you're using higher-end GPUs running at a much lower voltage much higher-end GPUs running on a much lower voltage to deliver a great performance. Max-Q's great innovation is really about running, you know, using silicon in a way that is about running it slower at the most energy-efficient point. Max-Q increases ASPs as well. So production, increase, production value increases ASP. Max-Q increases ASP. Um, competitive gear increases ASP, and those kind of factors don't play into game consoles. And the game consoles, you know, that sensibility provides for me, I think, the long-term floor. The long-term floor. 
So I don't know if these numbers all help you, but it's kind of in that space for us. And that's, those dynamics is what's causing ASPs to grow over time. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Aaron Rakers with Wells Fargo. Um, great presentation. I think one of the most interesting things that, that we heard is this idea of revenue sharing, this, this GeForce Now Alliance. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, kind of first question, how do we think about the proliferation of your partnership ecosystem or how are you thinking about it in terms of the service providers? And, and can you help us understand the attributes of the revenue sharing model, how we should think about that from a financial perspective? And then one real quick follow-up question. Any updated color on kind of your visibility on the data center side would be helpful. Thank you. Sure. Um, every country has a different telco. From many countries in Eastern Europe to Western Europe to Asia, Southeast Asia, Latin America, India, this is the first time we've been able to create a game platform that could scale out to those regions, the other billion gamers. Most of the gamers we've been able to reach are in the Western, Western and China. But there are so many emerging countries that would love to have access to PC gaming. PC gaming is particularly great because it's free to play. It's social. It's easy to access. It's open. They want a PC anyways. They need a PC anyways. So there are a lot of characteristics about PC gaming that makes it vibrant and unique. Using the GeForce Now Alliance, we can reach them. You buy a server from us, and then we operate the network on top of it for you. You buy the server from us, we operate the network on top of it. We take, um, in terms of uh, relative to the the, uh, when we go into a subscription model, when we go in, right now it's, it's in beta, when we go into a subscription model, say out of a, out of a few dollars, you know, call it, call it $10 a month of subscription fee, maybe uh, they'll keep, you know, more than half and we'll keep less than half. And the reason for that is because they bought the server, they're operating it, they're running it on their network. Does that make sense? All of the capital investment is theirs. On top of it, we're bringing the network, we're bringing the service, we're developing all the software, uh, we're operating it for them, we're enhancing the QoS, we're onboarding all the games, we're doing all the marketing because NVIDIA is the gaming platform, and, and so they, they, get to, they get to benefit from it as well. One of the things that's really great for them is in order to, to capture um, uh, Gosh, that's a terrible way of describing it. In order to, to win a new customer, uh, the economic benefit, as many of you know, is, is quite significant lifetime. And so for them, this is a pretty fantastic way to differentiate their service over somebody else's service. How many, the way that we see it is, is we'll probably enter into um, at least one of these relationships per country. And for the larger ones, maybe two or three. So this is quite a scalable approach. That's one of the reasons why we built the whole stack. We could do this. Nobody else on the planet can. We built the whole system, architected the whole server, developed all the software. Everything is in one, and everything is in one shop. And then, of course, we've been operating the service now for a couple of years, and we're getting quite good at it. Um, 
You had a second question. Data center visibility. Our data center business is in a grid in my mind. There's high-performance computing. There's high-performance computing. There's CSP for training, CSP for inference, CSP for cloud, and now enterprise high-performance computing. Enterprise high-performance computing, for example, data sciences. Cloud computing, all the things that we do on CUDA today. Deep learning, you know very well. Inference, Jay talked about. Last year we kicked it off. We're doing fantastic. And then supercomputing, you know very well. So that's, that's one way to think through it. And then you have, you have um, uh, all of the, the uh, go-to-markets by industries. And you, you overlay that across. We, have, we monitor, we monitor um, the intersections of this for every, every, for every one of those grids because, because how they use it and how they go to market is different. Jay told you our way of going to market basically, basically several ways. One is, of course, direct sales to the cloud service providers. Second, basically a high-performance convergence, hyper-converged high-performance computing solution. We call it reference architectures, DGX pod reference architecture. We also go through the market through uh, enterprise partners. And so we have all these different ways of going to market, and we, we, we just track, we just track um, uh, the pipeline for each one of those. Some of those we get better visibility, and some of them we get lesser visibility. For example, last year we had a little bit less visibility in uh, the hyperscale data center because they, they um, uh, in retrospect, we all realize now, uh, they bought too much capital uh, earlier in the year, and they had to really, really slow down. We didn't know about that at the time. And by the time we found out, it was well into the quarter. And so, so some areas we have less visibility, but we, we try to have as much of a pipeline as we can and monitor the pipeline on a weekly basis. So we, we feel pretty good about the year. Yeah, J John Pitzer with Credit Suisse. Justin, thank you for the presentation. Yeah. A couple questions, one kind of near term, one longer term. On the near term front, you spent a lot of time yesterday and today really focusing on your investments in software, platform, and ecosystem. There's one of your competitors that places a bunch of emphasis on process technology and line width nodes. Would love to hear you kind of talk about where that sits in kind of your quiver of IP and maybe talk about the path to seven nanometer for you. That's the near-term question. And I guess longer term, last week you clearly demonstrated that you think interconnect's going to be very important going forward in data center architecture. Wondering if you can make the same sort of comments around memory because um, clearly there's another one of your competitors who's looking at memory and persistent memory as perhaps a way to really lower the TCO. How do you view that as a competitive threat and what could you do on the memory side of things uh, to help out? Yeah, um, you, don't, you don't hear us talk about process technology, packaging technology, memory technology. And the reason for that is even though, even though we are world class at using it and oftentimes the earliest, for example, 3D packaging, the world's first is SXM, the largest chip that the world makes. HBM, we used it before anybody else. The reason why we don't talk about it that much is because we are just as good at buying all that stuff as anybody else. 
I don't find it particularly um, differentiating to be able to buy 7 nanometer. It's available for anybody who wants to buy it. They want to sell it to you. And so, so that is not a point of differentiation to me. What is a point of differentiation is architecture efficiency. For example, the fact that 2080 Ti or 2080 or Turing is so much more energy efficient compared to somebody's 7 nanometer GPU is shocking to everybody, but not to me. Not to me. That's the whole point. To be able to use something cost-effective so that we could, and, and cost-effective, cost-efficient, and get the most architectural innovation out of it, that's what we hire our engineers for. TSMC hire their, hire their engineers for building 7 nanometer. Our job is to get the most efficiency out of any, our, any silicon that we purchase. And our goal is to be able to deliver the best energy efficiency, the best performance, the best functionality at any given point in time. Turing is just crushingly good. Just got to measure it. It is that good. And that's one of the reasons why it's off to a great start. In terms of, in terms of um, uh, the data center, where you, where you see us really differentiate is, of course, we buy all the best. We're one of the world's largest consumers of HBM2. In fact, we are the world's largest consumer of HBM2. We're the world's largest consumer of 3D packaging at TSMC, COWAS. We ship more 3D packages than anybody. We just don't talk about it because our customers don't care. What they care about is the functionality they get, the efficiency they get, the performance they get, the TCO they ultimately get. That's what they care about. And that's what we focus on. In order to overcome the slowing Moore's Law, in order to overcome it in a dramatic way, and I don't mean improve it by 10%. If you want to overcome it by X factors, which is what we're about, if you overcome CPUs by 10%, you might as well just wait for the next CPU. Because accelerated computing requires software optimization, you would only do so if there's an X factor in there. And I mean 10X factor, because it's a fair amount of work. That's 600 plus applications, all of those frameworks, all of those deep learning neural network models we now accelerate, engineers worked on it really, really hard. Ours, theirs, the ecosystems, everybody working super hard. If it wasn't because of the pervasiveness of CUDA, nobody would lift their finger to do it. And so now that MapReduce is no different, MapReduce is for Hadoop what essentially what we just announced called Rapids for accelerated Hadoop. Think of it that way. Okay, Hadoop comes into memory. It's called Apache memory. On top of it is called Rapids. Rapids, the way to think about Rapids is essentially MapReduce except accelerated by GPUs. Well, you don't build that unless you have a great deal of, you know, computer science expertise. And that's what NVIDIA is. That's our, that's our differentiation. That's why we're not addressing a percentage share of a market someone else, someone else created. That's why our company is always talking about new markets that we're creating. And those new markets tends to be, 
tens, if not hundreds, billions of dollars large industries. You can't do that unless you go and reshape it, refactor it, come up with new algorithms. You can't build faster chips to do that alone. Hi, um, Mark Lopatis uh, from Jefferies. Uh, thanks a lot for the uh, uh, hey, presentation. Um, uh, I, I found the accelerated computing platform framework and vision particularly compelling. Uh, but it seems like some of your customers, your biggest customers, also use that same lexicon uh, platform, and, um, and they also have lots of resources. And I was wondering if you could help us um, maybe share with us a framework for thinking about the, the, frame, the, the platform that some of your customers are developing. Um, is, is that, is the NVIDIA platform, is it, um, is that, is your customer platform sitting on top of the NVIDIA platform or is it sitting next to the NVIDIA platform, let's just say five or, or ten years down the line? Thank you. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. And the reason for that, Mark, is, is um, uh, if you look at, you look across CUDA X, um, two, two, two of the, two of the, the squares are horizontal platforms. And in that case, a customer, a partner, excuse me, a partner of ours, ecosystem partner, would tend to um, jigsaw puzzle and interweave with it. Parts of our platform will stick out. Parts of our platform will not stick out, but accelerate parts of their platform. Okay, so let me give you an example. In the case of, of, in the case of cloud machine learning platforms like Google Machine Learning Cloud, or AWS, SageMaker, or Microsoft Azure ML. Okay? In those cases, in those cases, our XGBoost library sticks all the way up to the top. Our Rapids, which is essentially the modern version, accelerated version of MapReduce, goes all the way to the top. Our QDF, our QDF is basically like Pandas for one user or Spark for data centers. QDF is basically like Spark, but accelerated in the Python ecosystem. QML is basically Scikit-Learn. Okay? So these, our platforms go all the way to the top in some cases. In many cases, like TensorFlow, our Tensor Core architecture, Tensor Core AMP, Basically, and QDNN, CUDA, QDNN, TensorCore AMP, it sticks into and it's deeply integrated with TensorFlow. But what you see is TensorFlow. And so it just depends. The way we come at it is this. We try to create a, a platform where if the ecosystem prefers another platform supplier's approach, we would integrate into theirs. If one doesn't exist, and one never will exist, for example, if we didn't write Rapids, the, the, the map reduce of GPU accelerated data centers would never exist. Nobody's, nobody knows how to do it, nobody has enough body of engineers to do it, and nobody has the will to go do it. It's too much work. MapReduce, sitting on top of Yarn, sitting on top of Hadoop, is very complicated stuff. To GPU accelerate that is beyond comprehension. Nobody's going to go do it. That's why we had to go do it. And it took about four years to go do that. And so, so we, we, 
the first part is is when there's a platform like data science, we integrate into it depending on how they like. Okay, and so Google has some of our stuff sticking out. Uh, notice Rapids is now in virtual machines on the Google Cloud platform for their machine learning. It sits next to TensorFlow. In the, current, in, uh, in the case of SageMaker, uh, some of it more of Rapids integrate into SageMaker and some of it sticks out. In the case of um, uh, Azure, the vast majority of it sticks out. Okay, so that's one answer. The second answer is, in some vertical markets, like for example, um, large-scale medical imaging, computational, software-defined medical instruments, the future of medical imaging, multi-modality, image reconstruction, AI, visualization, segmentation in 2D and 3D, multiple disease, multiple, multiple sensor modalities. We've created a platform for that because one doesn't exist on the planet. We call that Clara. We will now integrate that platform into our partners. For example, um, uh, GE uh, has their medical imaging platform. It's very, very good. Siemens has an excellent one. Uh, uh, Sony has parts of it. Canon has some of it. Toshiba has some of it. Uh, so Philips has a lot of it. And so we will integrate Clara in pieces into those. We'll integrate all of it into Nuance, which is the, which is the text annotation standard, practically, of, of um, radiologists. Okay, so that's a Clara example. We also gave you a drive example. We developed a whole stack from top to bottom and end to end. And then everything is open so that if somebody would like to use our simulation platform, but not our physics platform, they'd rather have their own car physics simulator, for example, IPG, we're delighted to plug that in. If somebody would like to have um, our visualization and our physics simulation, but they would like to have somebody else's um, uh, traffic AI simulator, Cognata, we're delighted to plug that in. And so we create APIs all over our platform so that the ecosystem could adapt to it. Now, the positive way of thinking about it, which is the way we think about it, is, is of course, we would like to enable the ecosystem to uh, uh, shape our platform in the way they'd like to use it. Okay? The benefit to us, of course, is, is um, we're a more central part of the ecosystem. If you look at the transportation ecosystem, every day that goes by, more and more and more and more people have some, some of our stuff all over the company. Whether they're buying our chips for the car or not buying our chips for the car, they have our development systems. Sometimes they've built their own development systems, but they have our chips in the car. Sometimes they have our software in the car as well. And so all kinds of ways of working with people. So Mark, the answer is this. There's nothing more powerful than a platform of platforms. That's how we can reach. That's why, that's why the NVIDIA ecosystem is sticky. That's why the platform is sticky because we have other people's platforms integrated with our platforms. Our platforms are also, you know, out on its own, and together we're helping, helping the ecosystem, helping that industry uh, move forward, okay? Simplistically, that's how. Hi, it's Tim Arcuri at uh, UBS, thanks. Uh, I had two questions. First, um, in um, gaming, Jensen, 
if you read a lot of the websites, they sort of talk about the fact that most of the gamers um, that are playing AAA games, they have pretty old um, monitors, you know, three to five year old monitors. So uh, how do you think about maybe whether the display technology becomes a ramp or a gate on how fast, um, you know, Turing might ramp, number one. And number two, in terms of manufacturability, uh, you're already radical limited on a lot of your designs. So how do you think about how to combat that? Do you move to a chiplet design? And, you know, Intel's already sort of moving in that direction. So um, can, you, can you talk about that too? Thank you. Sure. Uh, the vast majority of the world's gamers are currently at 1080p. And, and the first thing that they want to do is, is in the world, once, they ha once the market is at, at any given resolution, in the case of 1080p, the first thing that they want to get to 1080p, but then they want to increase their frame rate within that 1080p, and they want to increase their frame rate, and then they want to increase, increase the beauty of the images at 1080p. Okay. Now, increasing their frame rate is not just about seeing it smoothly. It's about reducing latency. So, so 100 frames per second, 100 frames per second is, is um, much, much lower latency than 30, right? 30, 30 frames per second is 33 milliseconds, which is, which is quite a large number of milliseconds in the world of competitive sports. And so, so um, I, that's within 1080p. Once they achieve over 100 frames per second and the visual fidelity, all the options are turned on, then the next thing is they would like to go to the next resolution, which is 1440p. When you go to 1440p, everything gets cut in half. And then now you've got to double, you, you've got to increase your graphics processor so that you can start getting your frame rate back. Meanwhile, we just added ray tracing. And so um, we're going to keep on making their game experience better. Every two or three years, the resolution of monitors kind of clicks up another 2x. The next, you know, next one after that is 4K, but, but right now people are at, at 1440p. So, so I, we, I don't find that, that uh, monitors are, are an obstacle at all because there are two, they're, 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 as you know, I just mentioned, there are four factors. There's monitor resolution, there's latency and frame rate, there's visual fidelity, and then there's new features. And we've got some really great new features coming. Um, I'm sorry, your second question? It, I just turned 56, and it's like, boy, you know? Oh, yeah, right. Um, chiclets. Uh, chiclets. I think chiclets are good. They're yummy. I like the orange version. The... Uh, we are at reticle, your question was actually reticle limits. We are at reticle limits. Uh, Pascal, uh, the um, P100 was, was near reticle limits, Volta reticle limits, Volta is reticle limits. It is the reason why we invented NVLink, so that we could take 16 GPUs that are reticle limits and connect them all together. Okay? And then that's number one. Um, there are limits to 3D in one node, no matter how big that node is. And, and so we, we have to find a way to connect it through Smart Interconnect, and that's the reason why we uh, decided. Unit growth um, in total, um, and we'll probably announce that as we uh, work through the rest of the year. And okay. the, um, sorry, just the, the inventory flush, Q1 or Q2? Yeah, so we indicated in one to two quarters, starting back in November, that we would work through our overall inventory. 
So that means at the end of this quarter, that's the second quarter, one to two quarters, that we get through, not Q1, Q2, but starting back with where we started in November. Got it. So by the end of Q1, then, it should be done. That is correct. Thank you. Stacy, there's, you, you might have, you, you might be, you might have, have a, an assumption that that isn't quite right, um, where it's, or we, we've not been very clear. We have, we have a GPU at, at every price point. One of the, one of the confusions that we created for ourselves um, is, is uh, the price point of 1070 to 2070. There's an impression that, that we have, we, those two numbers should always be the same price. That somehow a BMW 5 Series would be exactly the same price over the history of time. And unfortunately, that's not possible. A 1070 was higher priced than 970. 970 was higher priced than, you know, 570. And so, so this is, it's just that because people are paying so much attention now these days, uh, they just, nobody paid any attention to it in the past. These numbers were only numbers to us in the past, and it's become numbers to society. It's a little bit like the 3 Series, the 5 Series, the 7 Series. It's a bit, it has gotten that kind of notoriety. And, and so, so uh, that was, I, I think that that was, you know, partly surprised me too. But we have a price, we have a, we have a GPU at every price point. There's a GPU at 299, 399, 499, 599, just like before. And at every single price point, it's way better. And so if people were buying, the 45%, the, the simple answer is it, it couldn't have been just for all from ASPs. It has to be from a lot from units because our ASPs didn't go up that far. The, the simple answer is yes. I mean, the simple answer is yes. Yeah, the simple answer is yes. Hi, I'm Breach from uh, BMO Colette. I had a question on the op model. Um, it, and as we think through gross margin for this year, and, and I wanted to go back to, uh, especially in context of uh, qualitatively, you've talked about the positive impact um, from the crypto business. So, um, and, and you gave us a delta between the inventory and, and then the 300 bips improvement. But as we think through the year, so near term, what's the right way to think about gross margin trajectory? And a little bit longer term, when you talk about the op margins, uh, focus to get those margins up, um, OPEX is, is kind of going, growing in line with what you've said consistently that you would be investing in the business. So is it going to be more on the margin front mix? What's the right way to think about it? Thank you. So when you think about our gross margins uh, as we move forward, uh, moving from uh, the conversation we just had about gaming, uh, as we look at the ranges of overall gross margin in that business, as we see people upgrade and upgrade higher into a higher overall GPU, that helps us in terms of overall margins. Additionally, when we think about, um, when we think about our overall data center business, we know that there's a significant amount of software that is incorporated in the platforms that we sell. Now you have an opportunity, again, to improve the overall gross margins as our data center business becomes more a larger percentage of our business as a whole. Let's not forget our overall automotive business. We're continuing that transition uh, from just our overall infotainment business to move to AI within the cockpit. 
move to the overall uh, development services that we are working with them, and then long term when we think about the overall production uh, piece of it as well. All of these things continue to change both the mix of what we're selling and overall improve our overall gross margins. Okay. When we focus, your focus in terms of on the OPEX and where we are focusing on the OPEX, is that the uh, nature of the question? Meaning how do they, uh, in terms of the total pieces. In this most current year, we take a look at this on a yearly basis to say what is the appropriate amount of spend. We have great opportunities in front of us um, that we need to make sure that we have properly invested in. But we have the uniqueness of that uh, unified architecture uh, to probably get the most out of the spend that we do in terms of OPEX. Going forward, uh, we're not here at a model that says we look at OPEX as a percentage of revenue. It's a little bit too um, massive company uh, and numbers focused. What we actually do is look at the workloads. What is it going to take us to get that work done? We focus in terms of redeploying even our internal headcount towards these projects uh, so that we can better utilize um, um, our workforce um, for more uh, greater things. Um, so right now, I would look at we will always keep OPEX front and center as a key area of investment, but keep that in mind in terms of focusing on operating profits in terms of how we can produce the best overall profit and leverage that we can um, as well. Those are the two things that we keep in mind rather than just an absolute overall OPEX or an OPEX as a percentage of revenue. Yeah. Hey, it's uh, Matt Ramsey from Cowan. Um, hey. A couple of questions. Um, I guess first, Jensen, um, you guys made a, a bid from Mellanox last week and it's no big secret that there were a couple of other folks that were also involved in, in that bid and I think you guys came at it a bit late. So. I wonder if you could give us a little bit of an update as to the industry and partner reaction to, um, to you attending to inquire that business and what steps you're making to keep the InfiniBand standard open. Um, and then Colette, um, maybe you could talk to us a little bit about the infrastructure your group may be putting in place to monitor inventory levels across the business and across the channel. You may be getting a little bit less granular information now from the G4 software stack as to when GPUs are actually activated for gaming. So whatever infrastructure you put in place there to monitor inventory, an update would be helpful. Thank you. We are super excited that Mellanox decided to accept our offer. Wow, was it competitive. And the reason for that is because, because they're such a unique unique company. 20 years in the making, 100% focus on high-performance computing networks, a software stack that's been inter that's integrated into high-performance computing software stacks all over the world. Uh, you, you know that this, this is, when you're building a high-performance computing system, this is, this is a, a great, great company to work with. They have a lot of expertise. It is the only. You should. You should. You should also highlight that that when you when you look at all these press releases of of uh, 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 systems being built, they seem to be the only other company aside from us mentioned. It's actually kind of interesting, and the reason for that is because their engineers work hand in hand um, at the data centers uh, on all the software engineering that's necessary to to get the performance, lowest latency processing, the best performance, the offloading necessary. And, and the data structures being moved around in these in, in, uh, in distributed computing these days is really, really complicated stuff. 
And so they're, they're really a, a super special company. Um, the customers and the in industry is just delighted. They're delighted because they really feel that this important company is going to be um, well cared of in our hands because we understand computer architecture. This is a computer architecture question. This is a system ar 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 architecture question. This is not a chip question. It's not a components question. It's an architecture question. And they understand that we care about this area very, very much. From the highest, highest points of leadership all the way through this company, Mellanox knows, the industry knows, this is something that we're very good at, something we care very much about, and that we're going to continue to invest in this, and we're going to invest in it uh, leveraging many of the things that, that our company has. Uh, they can take advantage of all that to accelerate their development. And so this is an area that, that um, uh, the industry is just delighted by. And we're going to, of course, keep it open. And uh, our, our whole platform, as you know, is an open platform. What NVIDIA is about is creating open platforms that everybody else can build uh, their companies, their markets, their applications, their data centers around. This is an open, open platform company. So the comments on the overall inventory um, and our process that we have done, both in terms of our inventory that we have on hand, uh, with this sudden uh, drop-off in terms of overall cryptocurrency, uh, many of the work that we had started uh, for the demand that we felt uh, followed that uh, had started as early as six months prior in terms of the work with our overall fabs, our works in overall purchasing, um, the components and the pieces that we need to put that together. So at the time that Q3 and Q4 came around, um, and we had seen uh, the, the drop-off of crypto, it became that opportunity to look through primarily just the components and the over amount of components that we had associated with there. Uh, we feel that's a thorough process that we do from time to time, um, and this was even more of a thorough process to make sure we fully understood. But again, looking in hindsight, Probably nothing we could do, um, given a lot of those purchases were done more than six months ago. The other focus is a focus in terms of on our channel and our focus in terms of where they are in this process in terms of uh, channel. Now, what we've done is looked at not only just the weeks or what can we get in terms of reporting in terms of the weeks, but where they are in the life of the overall product. Where are they before it launches? Where are they at the time that it launches? Where are they six, eight weeks into it? To assure they have the appropriate amounts to both feed the market and that we have enough inventory and that we haven't gapped out, but also on the side that says, is there the right amount levels if we are a year or two years down? The overall cadence is continuing, but the rigor in terms of at the life cycle at any stage is probably where we put more of the focus. Jensen probably have more to add here. No, I, I, I know every chip by name now, and I have a relationship with every one of them, and so I monitor all of them from birth to their next life. Good morning. Thanks for uh, thanks for hosting this presentation, Harlan Sarah, J.P. Morgan. Um, we had the head of your healthcare team, Kimberly Paul, present at our healthcare conference recently, and the team is doing a lot here, right? Medical imaging, patient diagnosis, drug discovery, genomics, and they're leveraging all of the systems platforms within your Provis and data center portfolio, and 
driving healthcare-specific platforms like Claro that you mentioned, Jensen. And I know that you're targeting the platform approach across other verticals, industrial, retail, agriculture. So wondering if you can just size these vertical targeted businesses with your TAM outlook of 50 billion. Could, could the vertical focus represent 20 to 30% of the overall 50 billion TAM? That's my first question. And then second question, if you could just give us an update on China. Have you seen demand fundamentals starting to improve with the more relaxed government stance on gaming bans? I know the second question better, yes. The first question, uh, the way we do it, the way we do it is this. We never talk to you about TAMs until we have clear sight of it. So notice we've not one time talked to you about Claritam. We just assume it's zero. Until we, we really, really understand deeply like drive and we're engaged deeply with the ecosystem, that's when we start sizing it. Otherwise, we go to zero. Um, industrial, we assume zero. But there's no question it's not zero. There's no question it's not zero. But we largely assume it's zero. Um, uh, let's see, what, what others? Robotics, we assume zero. But there's no question it's not gonna be zero. There's no question, it, it can't be zero. It's, it's, it, it, it will very likely be the largest AI market. Everything, is, every, sensors literally everywhere. Temperature sensors, vibration sensors, camera sensors, microphone sensors, unfortunately, sometimes, and, you know, and so, so uh, it's going to be everywhere. And so, so I, I think we, we assume it's largely zero until we have a really clear sight of it. And then we, we can talk, talk to you about it with some amount of expertise. Until then, we just assume it's very large based on intuition. We have to, most of the markets we go into in the beginning, it's all based on intuition. Let me give you an example of the intuition that led us to Clara that is very clearly the right intuition. The t intuition was that in the future, healthcare, its most important instrument, imaging, medical imaging of any modality will be software defined. That was the intuition, that it will be software defined in the future. And that was spot on. Now we started, we had that intuition about five years ago and we started working on it. And, and we, we tried to not overinvest in it in the beginning so that we could do a lot of discovery work um, and uh, do some prototyping work. And if you take a look at some of the early versions of Clara that I showed you, I mean, it was, it was rickety, you know? But it, it at least gave us the opportunity to engage with doctors and research universities all over the world and get a lot of feedback. And now, you know, we're we're uh, we're in we're in deployment. And so so uh, uh, that's how we that, that's kind of how we do it. Ten years ago, when I started working on Drive, the early version of it was kind of rickety. Um, and, and but but I knew that that there's no question in my, in my mind that that a self-driving car was going to be a software-defined problem. You're not going to connect 17 chips, you know, separate chips from 14 different vendors together into a what is apparently a self-driving car. That's just not how it works. And so there was no question in my mind it was going to be software-defined. And so we just kind of take it, take it methodically, and the timing has to be right. There's some other things that we're working on um, that I don't think the timing is quite right, and so, so we're, we're, we underinvest slightly, and, but I keep an eye on it and dabble on it so that, that this company has a, has a, has a future um, beyond what we currently describe to you, and we have a future 10 to 15 years out you know, that we're working on at all times. Okay, so that's, that's the thing I really love about our company is the, this ability 
uh, to, on the one hand, execute incredibly well on today's work, uh, realize, realize the dream for tomorrow, and start to explore the day after that, and to find the right balance of all of that. That's, you know, I just, I just love working with the management team on it. I think we have time for one last question. Oh, boy, the pressure is high, sir. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Mitch C. from RBC. So I just want to turn back to the gaming. I really had two questions. So first, um, it's good to hear that the Turing launch has gone well for the beginning, but how do we get comfortable, I guess, around the content increases going forward without any visibility into kind of the games we made? And then secondly, if I recall, about a couple of years ago, you guys used to really emphasize VR, the unit opportunity there, what the ASPs would be, but I notice now it's kind of like not as topical, so I'm guessing, I'm wondering why that is, and kind of with the unit opportunities going forward since that was supposed to be somewhere around a, a 2020 opportunity. Yeah, great. Um, uh, let's see. Why am I so absolutely certain? Uh, I'm, I'm as certain, I'm as certain about, about ray tracing as I am that this is the last question. <laughs> I, I, because I'm in total control of it. <laughs> no, because you said so. Because Simone said so. So, so, so number one, number one, the reason for that is this. Uh, uh, there's, there's no question that ray tracing is the right answer because it was always the right answer. It, using, mimicking the physical behavior of light, the physical modeling of light, uh, is what computer graphics is all about. And, and uh, the issue with ray tracing was never, was it the right answer? Was it the more elegant answer? Is it the simpler answer? It's all true. It's just that it just was too computationally intensive. And so we found a way to use this hybrid rendering approach of half some rasterization, some ray tracing. And that's what RTX means, mixed mode rasterization and, uh, and uh, ray tracing. Uh, we invented this technology, invented this approach, and we, we, uh, we evangelized it to the ecosystem, to the world. And, and uh, you, you saw uh, some of the things that happened. Microsoft with DirectXR, Vulkan RT, engines built on top of it. Epic's engine is now 4.22, is now DXR ready, RTX ready. And Unity's next build uh, coming out on April 4th is also RTX and DXR ready. These are the engines of the game industry. This is the operating system of the game industry. And if the engines has it and it works fast, it's, you just use it. That's how it works. You just use it. You don't have to invent it. You just use it. It's in, it's in the toolkit. And so there's no question in my mind that it's going to happen. I'm absolutely certain of it. Okay? And so, so, so uh, uh, games keep coming out. Games keep coming out. They come out, they come out on an almost monthly cadence. Uh, several hundred games a year, as you know. And... Um, not to include, not, not, not to mention China. I mean, there's a whole bunch of games being, in Korea, a bunch of games being made. So there's lots of games being made. There's no question, in a year's time, ray tracing will be literally everywhere. This conversation is worthwhile to capture. In a year's time, we'll come back and say, gosh, you were right. It was the last question. <laughs> that is world-class humor, sir. Um, and so, 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 uh, um, I, what was the second question? Oh, VR. Um, you, we don't talk about VR very much, but VR is really, really still very important. It's particularly, it, particularly we work with, uh, we work with um, uh, Microsoft on, on HoloLens uh, we, uh, because industrial design uh, in a professional market, 
between the two of us, uh, we're, we're, uh, we, we do really great work there. Uh, VR is used in industrial design all over the place, uh, styling, architectural engineering. Uh, it, it is a very important part of our of our quadro business. It's probably one of the reasons, one of the one of the drivers that's causing ASPs to go up. Um, in the consumer world, in the consumer world, um, uh, I think what we really re really would love to have is a VR headset that is um, uh, that is less cumbersome with less cables. And Turing has a uh, special connector that comes out of it that that it's called virtual link that connects into a head mount display that reduces the amount of cables and the weight of the cable tremendously and so uh, a whole bunch of new head mount displays are coming out uh, it, it's starting to show up now and um, I think you'll be surprised I think I think there's there's no question that the experience is fantastic and then the next step beyond that will likely be some form of head mount display that is VR, AR-ish, and stream from the cloud. If somebody could figure out how to stream VR from the cloud, and you might have, you might have seen some of our work in this area, uh, some collaboration we've done with AT&T and Verizon to test NVIDIA's wireless VR from GFN, from GeForce Now. We could stream VR directly out of the cloud. This technology is still in development. Um, we're still very early, you know, I would say, I would say beta quality, um, but the experience is really quite phenomenal. When you take that and you connect it up to a head mount display now that's wireless, then you have no cables at all. And if it's semi-translucent, then, um, you know, where AR starts and VR starts and ends is going to be quite interesting. Okay, so, so don't, don't, um, uh, don't take your eyes, keep asking me this question, we're, we're continuing to work on it. Uh, the, the ability to mix reality and, and virtual reality uh, is, is going to come. It's absolutely going to come, and I'm excited about it. I want to thank all of you guys for joining us today. And uh, GTC, we're at, we're at the, the, this is all where it started, and it's kind of fun to sit up here and, and, and chat with you guys where, where it started. And now you guys know what GTC turned into. Last year, we had over 30,000 GTC attendees. And I'm looking at 200. That's fairly fast growth in a matter of 10 years. So I want to thank all of you for your support. Have a great GTC. And, and lunch, if you head out the doors, turn to the left and the gold room. And we'll be here as well as with the executives um, from the company. And we'll join you for lunch. Thank you.